Hi, I'm Katerina and this is Sound Effects, a new music and mental health podcast. Hello. Hello, Katie. <laughs> nope, this isn't Oasis podcast, but it is James from Oasis Pod, about to tell me his life story through music, talking me through the songs that have shaped him, his very own Desert Island Discs. Start from the beginning. All right. Tell me about your life. All right. Let's go back into your, literally, your beginnings. So where you were, and um, um, you said you've got um, older siblings. If you tell me a little bit about the kind of family setup. Yeah, sure. Way. So I'm the youngest of four. I grew up in um, a place called Didcot in South Oxfordshire, which is um, like quite a, in a quite a nice part of the world, and we're quite near places like Wallingford and Oxford and Henley, which are posh, um, but Didcot's quite a working-class town. So it always has been, from having the railway there, having the power station there, it's always been kind of a bit of a working-class enclave inside quite a posh area. So although I'm from a posh area of South Oxfordshire, we're pretty rough in Didcot. <laughs> so, you know, if you're from, like, a Henley or, a, or an Oxford or a Wallingford, like... Didcot is seen as being a little bit more um, working class, which is great because, you know, I, I'm sort of, uh, you know, I, I can come across a, thing, a little bit posh, but then a little bit normal as well. So I think that's sort of where, where, where it's, it's quite a good, you know, it's a good place to grow up. I had like Oxford and Reading on my doorstep, you know, and then, then when it came to later on getting out to gigs and stuff, sort of between London, Birmingham, um, you know, you can get out to these places and see gigs. Um, but it's quite funny. Like, if you look up famous people from Didcot on the internet, like, there's literally, well, until a few years ago, there was literally no one uh, from Didcot has ever done anything notable ever. <laughs> um, probably the best we've got is the, there's a Virgin radio presenter called Matt Richardson, who's a stand up comic and has done like, you know, TV shows and stuff. He's from Didcot, although he doesn't, you know, I think he got out pretty quick and doesn't sort of advertise the fact very much. I'll tag him on Twitter occasionally and remind him where he's from, but you know. <laughs> Um, but yeah, um, so, and I think it's because it is sort of a relatively nice area. It's not like people talk about Manchester, you know, oh, you've got to get out of Manchester because it's so rainy and depressing and people are just desperate to get out and make something of themselves. And it's not like London where you've got so much happening and it's buzzing and, and, you know, and, and there's loads of opportunity. I think in Didcot, it's just like a relatively nice town with a train line out of it where you can get to where you want to go. So, you know, that kind of, that sort of means that no one from here ever really does anything <laughs> other than leave, <laughs> other than leave on the train. What brought your family there? Because you, you said you, you come from an Irish background, or both your parents? No, so my dad's Irish and is one of eight, and my mum's English and is, and is an only child. So although I'm half Irish, actually, you know, the Irish Catholic family was you know everyone in my family so so I've I've got hundreds of Irish cousins um, whereas I've got like a handful of, of English relatives so I've always kind of seen myself as Irish family um, you know obviously I'm very English and when I whenever I go over to County Tyrone where my family are from I always feel very English because you know you go over there <laughs> I, I always sort of count myself as Irish I support the Irish, Ireland football teams and things like that but but when I go over there you're like I'm an English boy <laughs> you know what I mean I, I completely accept that <laughs> So, um, yeah, you know, and, and it's funny, like in the process of thinking about this, you know, Irish song, Irish folk songs, um, Irish country songs and things have always been a part of my life. Rebel songs as well. You know, that's, they've always been there. And I don't, I probably, if someone said, I'll oh, name 10 
Irish folk songs that I probably couldn't. But then when you play them, it's like, oh, well, I know them all. I know them all all by, off by heart. And I think that, you know, my love of, sort of song lyrics and my love of storytelling in songs actually probably comes back to that actually comes back to that you know growing up with you know sitting in irish pubs listening to uh listening to irish songs uh, irish singers and playing the old songs yeah would you sing them as well um yeah I, I suppose so i mean i was always a little show off like i'm i'm the youngest <laughs> I mean, it's probably hard to believe katie i know but um i'm the youngest <laughs> of four and i'm a little bit so i've got two older ones that are like 11 and 10 years older than me and then five years older than me and then me so I was always kind of a little show off of the family and sort of the my first sort of song that I said like songs that shaped me was um Rockin Robin Jackson 5 and the reason for that is that um Michael Jackson was my first sort of musical icon you know it feels a bit difficult now as obviously everything that's come out about him in the recent years but you know he was my hero he was the best and um you know he was a god he wasn't just a singer like fucking rick astley you know he was a a a superhero and you know and and he was the one on my walls he was the one you'd watch you know moonwalk the film you know listen to like thriller and things and, and and bad bad was probably like first album when I came out in 87 when I was seven, and that was just, you know, the first one where I was examining, examining the liner notes, you know, and just looking at the pictures and watching all the videos, copying the dance moves. Um, you know, Joel from, you know, my good friend Joel, who's been on the podcast and you, you've met, um, he's when he was best man at my wedding, and he talked about meeting me at, like, um, this, like, kids' summer skiing thing when we were, like, seven, eight years old. And he was like, oh, he's the idiot in the corner doing Michael Jackson dancing by the jukebox. <laughs> so, so yeah, so that was me doing like Michael Jackson moves. But the reason I chose sort of Rockin' Robin is that I was never just a listen to the songs person. I was always like, a, who is this person and where do they come from? So as far back as I can remember, you know, I wasn't just listening to bad. I was then rifling through my like parents and my my older siblings record collection and pulling out, you know, they had a best of the Jackson five and a best of the Jacksons. And so I was like chucking them, you know, put put that onto a cassette tape, had that in my Walkman. And the early Jackson five just struck with me. I love that that sound so much. Um, and and so even as a really little kid, you know, I can just sort of imagine myself my Walkman on singing along to, you know, Rock and Robin, I Want You Back, ABC. The Love You Save, all those early Jackson 5 brilliant songs. I was going to say, in the notes that you sent me, it said you were breakdancing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know about breakdancing, more like Michael Jackson dancing, maybe <laughs> trying to break down but failing. I was never that acrobatic, but I could do, uh, I could moonwalk and I could, like, you know, body pop a little bit. So, yeah, I, was, I wasn't head spinning, let's put it that way. I can see the parallels with Liam now coming to the fore, you know, because <laughs> didn't he break dance at one point? As a yeah, team? yeah. Well, that was a big scene, you know, like they <laughs> laid down the vinyl and people were doing yeah. break dancing and stuff. It wasn't. I, mean, I was a bit young for that, but you know, the the I remember mm-hmm. being at like the you know youth club and and um, this kids summer scheme thing and, and like the older kids. This is like so late eighties, so yeah, it would be kind of the, the sort of Beastie Boys yeah. and Run DNC and things like that, and they would be break dancing and doing like really cool moves, you know, properly. Like, you know, I couldn't do that. I could do a bit of um, yeah, Michael Jackson pointing and and uh, <laughs> you know and and spinning and moonwalking. That was about as far as I went. Did you have one of those really big, massive stereos? <laughs> you know, those stereos you could put on your shoulders. No, <laughs> no, no, I didn't. 
get yeah, it no, that, Did you? <laughs> yeah, I did, but it was, it was actually my brother's, but I inherited it, so I had that in my room. Oh, cool. <laughs> well, the one thing I do remember is I had, like, my, my parents had one of those, like, really big, fancy cabinets, you know, with a record deck on top, two tape decks, um, you know, and radio. And so you could, it was this big cabinet thing that would be sort of a centerpiece of the room. And I remember that I would um, record, I'd make sort of compilation tapes from records. And I would also like, I remember distinctly doing like my top 10 songs of all time and making that into a thing. And also then like talking over it, like copying radio DJs, but I didn't have a microphone. So I, I remember like doing this sort of recording and just thinking, well, if I just talk near to the recording tape deck, it should pick it up. And being then really gutted when it didn't pick it up afterwards. So, so my, um, my attempt at a radio show was just music with big gaps in between where I thought I was talking. But I think you've mentioned that in your notes as well, that you were kind of like creating little radio shows. Well, like that's actually a theme that goes through your life, um, which we'll probably come back to because you mentioned that when you're at uni as well. So we'll definitely come back to that and talk a bit because it kind of leads to what you do now, mm. I guess. But. It seems like that was always there, like this kind of desire to record and make little shows and they're kind of focused around music. Yeah, definitely. I loved, I mean, I loved listening to the radio, you know, I loved pop music and I loved the radio and I loved TV and film. And I kind of knew from an early age that I wanted to do something like that. You know, I also loved boxing and I wanted to be a boxing manager. Um, but that never happened. But, um, like, you know, uh, so I always, yeah, I, from making those little radio shows and, and, you know, and boring people with Michael Jackson talk and things like that. Yeah. Music was always a, um, a big part of my life. And, uh, yeah. And then, as I say, then on the radio at uni, when I sort of got the chance to do that, you know, I definitely got involved with that. And then, yeah, and then being in the band and did recording in the band, but just before that and things. So, yeah. So it was always, I always wanted to do something fun along those lines, um, whether it be a career. You know, I did media at uni and, and a few of my friends have gone on to do other stuff in the media sort of world, whereas I didn't. I kind of um, step away and took like a proper job. But but no, I always had that inkling to do something. And yeah, and then, and then podcast and, and the sudden being able to just like, well, I can just get this phone in my pocket and hit record. And then we're done. You know, you just plug it in to, you know, you just then upload it to, it just became so easy. You know, it was getting an iPhone. It just became yeah. so easy. I'm like, well, I can, I can do it. I don't need a radio station to like take a chance on me. I can just do it myself and, and generate, you know, and, and generate it that way. So, so no, it was definitely always a bit of part of my life. And then the, and then it was just that opportunity really in the last few years of, of things becoming easy now. I was like, oh, brilliant. I'll just do that then. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's almost like you could have had a whole load of parallel lives <laughs> of, being a rock star, <laughs> a radio show host, um, a boxing manager. <laughs> yeah, the boxing manager was never going to take off, to be fair. I do know, uh, like, talking about, like, you know, being a geek and knowing about stuff and, like, you know, you know, boxing is something I am I love and, and loved as a kid and I would sort of, you know, read through, you know, the illustrated history of boxing and memorise, you know, all Muhammad Ali's fights and things like that. So it's just always one of those things that I've always... The stuff I've loved about, yeah, stuff I love, I geek about and I, I really get into and, and learn about. And that's, you know, that goes into then doing mastermind and things later. But, but yeah, no, it is, it is interesting, like all the different things of if this happened, then where would we be? But no, I'm quite happy where we are. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, you're getting some celebrity in and of its own right. <laughs> <laughs> and the next 
some that you've listed is Ray Charles' Shake a Tail yes. Feather. Yeah, I, th- I think, well, basically, this is sort of about film and music and comedy. You know, that's, you know, it's whether it's, you know, I've always appreciated comedy in music and comedy in film and, and the, the way all those things kind of come together. And, um, you know, and then going back to the soul music as well. So I loved, like, Michael Jackson, Jackson 5. And then I, one of my favourite films of all time, and it still is, is The Blues Brothers. And, um, you know, I love The Blues Brothers. Um, yeah, Ray Charles' Shake It Tail Feather is just one of the most soulful and fun and just joyous pieces of music ever recorded. And, um, you know, and it also sort of leads into, um, like, my first kind of proper live music experience as well. So, so I think, I, you know, I mentioned, like, having grown up in Irish pubs, you know, you sort of sat there listening to the old Irish folk songs and stuff. But that was generally me sort of sat there, you know, drinking a Coke and eating crisps, bored out of my mind while, like, you know, <laughs> well, like, can we go now? You know, sort of just bored having to listen to these Irish singers. <laughs> um, whereas the first kind of gig in inverted commas I went to was like a, a thing in sort of, I think my last year at primary school and the son of our head teacher at primary school was in like a blues band uh, and he probably only would have been like 12, 13 or whatever so probably absolutely rubbish but to me, because they played all these Blues Brothers songs and um, and I was blown away I, th- I couldn't believe it I was just buzzing to hear this live music and this soulful music like Sweet Home Chicago and you know and, and Spencer Davis group Give Me Some Lovin' and, and like Check a Tail Feather and it's just so... I, I still concede, like, you know, as much as I love Britpop and as much as I love, like, the Beatles and, and 60s British beat groups, the best music of all time was created in America by Motown and, and the related artists from, like, 64 to, like, 73 or something like that. That period of music, I think with the civil rights movement and everything that was going on, there's just something so... Uh, just life-affirming and soulful and joyous in that music that it's it's the pinnacle of music for me. shared with other members of your family or friends or was that unique to you not really i mean i suppose because say being quite a lot younger um i mean my brother moved out pretty early on um and um and then my sister who's five years older than me i was probably just too annoying so we didn't really get on that well just because you know being the annoying little brother but then my sister who was 10 years older than me we did get on really well and, um, you know, so when I was like six and she was 16, she would take me out to the shops with her and her friends and stuff. So so I always kind of um, and she was always really encouraging. Then later on with all the, the you know, music when I was in the band, she would be the you know, person that probably saw my band the most. You know, she would always come and always encourage me to do stuff. So, um, yeah. Yeah. So so and she was really, really, really into music. I mean, both my older brother and, and older sister were both really into music. Um, and sort of, you know, but then it was my, my elder sister that, that really played me, you know, a lot of music and, and, um, really sort of engendered that love of music in me, really. Yeah. 
And is that the same sister who played you, the Smiths? Yes, yeah. So, <laughs> so it was only years later because Smiths Asleep is, you know, if people don't know it, it's a song about suicide. You know, don't try to wake me for I will be gone. But, you know, it's such a lovely melody and it's this beautiful kind of piano-led piece that Kate would play it to me like as a, as a sort of a going to sleep kind of lullaby type song. And it's only years later, I was like, I figured out, I went back and sort of re, you know, reinvestigated the Smiths, like, you know, in my 20s kind of thing. And I was like, this is about bloody suicide. <laughs> okay, what were you doing? And she was like, oh, yeah, I don't know. I hadn't really thought of it. It's just a lovely tune, you know, but um, yeah. So no, uh, it's quite funny, really, because I was never a Smiths fan. Like, I think that there was that song. There's a couple of other songs that I remember hearing sort of coming from her room. But I think later on, I think the Oasis thing, you know, kind of the, the, I was more interested in kind of the cooler kind of, you know, guys like, you know, Liam and Ian Brown and Tim Burgess rather than the more effeminate kind of Brett Anderson, Martin Rossiter, um, Morrissey. I didn't really get into them at that time. I think I was more focused on the, like the cooler, sort of more masculine guys really. And it's only sort of later on I sort of went and rediscovered the Smiths. And I, I love them now, but, you know, I sort of was quite, I wasn't really into them, other than the fact, yeah, I was sort of indoctrinated into them from an early age. <laughs> it's interesting what you're saying about the lyrics of the Smiths because they are like quite dark lyrics generally, and I always found it quite interesting that Noel was a Smiths fan, given that he's quite a positive character, like when he's talking about um, bands that he was influenced by, they, they would all be kind of positive, and his lyrics are positive, and then he kind of name checks the Smith and I, I always found that interesting yeah it is I think it's really because of Johnny Marr I think that you know I think he really just focused on Johnny Marr with it you know with his look and his guitar sound and everything else I think he could probably take or leave Morrissey and, and Johnny Marr was the you know was his hero so I think that's probably where where that comes from yeah do you listen to do you listen to any Smith now or um yeah, they're yeah. not a go-to band for me. I mean, they, um, I do really like them. Um, they're not sort of, as I say, they're not like on heavy rotation. Um, we did, as I say, I went to the Smiths Tribute like a, a year or so ago, and so I gave them a, a real good listen through then. Um, you know, I had not been the first time probably for a few years. But no, I think they are brilliant. And, and as I say, it is, it's getting back to that, um, the lyric, the lyricist, you know, I, I love lyricists like Pulp, but were a massive band for me growing up and things like that. And so, you know, so it was going back and, and getting past kind of Morrissey's voice really was the thing for me because I really didn't like yeah. his voice. That was the thing. It sort of put me off. <laughs> you know, that, that sort of like, um, singing from the throat there, like sort of annoyed me. Yeah. And, uh, but then when you actually look at the lyrics and you just go, Oh my God, like that is, it's so funny and so powerful that the, that I, I do love them, but I probably don't listen to them as much as I should. I, I think I feel very similar to you in that I, I never liked Morrissey's voice, that lyrically I like the lyrics and I like the melodies of the songs, but um, his voice is like, this is kind of like a genre of bands where it's like singing as if they're talking rather than um, singing in a melodic yeah. way. And I really don't enjoy that. <laughs> <much>. <laughs> was, there, was there anything else you wanted to say about that song? 
No, not really. I mean, that that was kind of it. It is it's funny when you kind of go back and listen to it. I mean, the other big song around that time was um, Heartland by The The. And, um, you know, once again, The The's another band I've never listened to more than a few songs of. Um, but, yeah, my I remember, like, the, the album cover um, is, is so powerful. It's like a real... Um, shocking kind of image um, like sort of the King Crimson sort of album cover sort of similar to that and uh, it's got the lyrics to Heartland on the back and it's quite a um, you know it's quite a, it's quite funny actually with the, the current sort of political climate if you go back and listen to that song now it's all about I mean the, the um, you know the ultimate sort of hook is um, this is the 51st state of the USA and it's talking about like the decline of Britain obviously this is like Thatcher's Britain because it's in the 80s um, but it's just so poetic you know and um, but yeah it's funny because I remember like learning it off by heart and that came out I think in like 87, 88 so I would have been like eight, seven, eight years old and um, I actually look back now and the lyrics are pretty strong and there's a few swear words in there and stuff so it's like oh okay she taught me that alright that's good but um yeah, I just remember being like exposed to loads of different music through them. Um, I don't know if I've mentioned this, but my first, like what I claim is my first piece of music criticism. And, um, my, you know, I think, I don't know if I've mentioned Billy Bragg later. I think we do, but, but my first piece yeah. of music criticism was like hearing Billy Bragg coming out of my brother's bedroom and just thinking like, what is that? And this is like early Billy Bragg. So just like, you know, electric guitar and that, you know, the barking voice from barking, just like, you know, um, just belting out like power of a union or something and and just being like who is that and my brother saying oh that's billy bragg he's the only singer that can't sing and then me coming back with uh huh what about kylie minogue and him going like ah good one and i was like yes got her and and so kylie you know with having just come out as well and being get a lot of abuse you know from coming from neighbors and stuff but but um yeah, and so I was always fascinated by that, that sort of the weird noise of this guy. But, um, but then once again, it's another one I put away and didn't really listen to then until like much later, sort of a sort of university kind of days. I then really dug into Billy Bragg and, and got into him. Yeah. I'm kind of curious about how, um, music impacts you when you're talking about like the, what it sort of strikes out at you. You said lyrics really hit you, um, and also hearing these sounds, like how would you describe the that feeling that you get when when something touches you like that? Like what's what's happening to you? If that's not a strange yeah, question, yeah, no, I, <laughs> like, how do you experience no, that, it? that's really interesting, <laughs> and I think it's changed over the years, and I think it's it's because I'm I'm more cynical now about music and um and I'm more like arms crossed. Okay, then new band win me over. You know, and so, uh, and because I'm quite analytical about music from doing the podcast and from everything else. So, so for instance, um, you know, taking it to the Oasis side, like probably the most recent kind of experience of being bowled over by a track was, um, uh, the Liam Gallagher's, um, uh, piano recording of Once. So, you know, so that, for instance, I'd heard the song once, you know, and that sort of had, had eked out over sort of a few different periods, like first off, like from the out, uh, from the film and then from, um, uh, and then when we actually heard the track itself, but hearing that piano, you know, there's something in the, the voice, the like the fragility of his voice, because the way he belts it out 
you know, he doesn't sing. You know, like say so, so, something like "Stop Crying Your Heart Out," for instance. When Noel sings it, he deliberately tries to emote through the. You know, he tries to emote, picking certain words to accentuate, or even like, you know, "Don't look back in anger." He'll don't look back in anger, and he'll put breathiness into his voice and things like that. So he's deliberately emoting um, to try and be more emotional. Whereas Liam belts it, but in belting it, there's almost an extra level of fragility because he's like. He's not allowing himself to emote. He's just going for it, and it's like, is he covering up the desire to emote? If if that makes any sense. So, so um, that's that's kind of and so he's listening to that, and, I, and my brain sort of analyzes songs. So as as a song is playing, I'm often hearing, you know, so straight away I'm sort of making connections, like constellations in the sky. I'm going like, okay. All right, that that sounds a bit like the Beach Boys. That sounds a bit like the Beatles. That sounds a bit like you know, Procol Harum, or you know, whatever it is. I'm like, okay, well, but, 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 and I'm sort of connecting it, and I'm going, do I like this? What's this doing to me? As these these things are all adding up, and then as it builds, I'm then going, okay, surprise me, surprise me. Where are we going now? The vocal comes in, I'm like, okay, what does that voice do for me? You know, both in a historical context and. The way it's delivering the lyrics. Are the lyrics saying something to me that means something, or is it cliche? So, for instance, going back to Oasis, like this is the place, the recent Noel song. As I'm listening to it, I'm going, okay, this is good. I'm liking it. This is interesting. It's building. I can see where the influences are. And then the lyrics came in, which is so cliched. And so I just went, oh. And it was like, you know, if you sort of, you know, interest factor. You know, if you can imagine like the line sort of increasing, increasing, and then these like lyrics come in that are just, you know. Whether it's like the further you go, the higher you climb, or something like that, and you're like, oh, okay, and it just drops, just wilts, you know, and then and then it has to, and it has to engage me again, you know, and then so, and so, so for instance, like going back to like, you know, someone like Pulp, you know, he'll say like um, in Common People, right? Yeah, so to take a real obvious example, you know, he'll say like, you want to sleep with Common People like me, and then there's a pause, but she didn't pause. Understand. She just smiled and held my hand, and then you go back in, and it's it's that combination of you know it's playing with your expectations as the song is going along, you know, and, and it's playing with the idea. It's it's a classic. It's a joke, you know, a joke format where you set an expectation and you change the expectation, and that's how comedy works, and and, and that's how you know pulp, you know, that's what Jarvis is so brilliant at, and um, you know, and and it's the combination of that. Combined them with using the music to accentuate it as well is just that for me is the best thing in the world when you can get that. Um, it doesn't need, have to necessarily have to be, um, you know, comedic. I mean, comedic I think adds so much more to it. But even something like uh, I've talked about it before, but probably the most like one of the most impacted I was by a song was hearing "Don't Go Away" for the first time. Mm. You know, um, and when he, you know, and that chorus when he says. You know, and I want to be there when you hit the ground, and then um, don't go away, boom, and it comes in, just like, you know, and my heart skips a beat. And, and the best music in the world, I mean, as I say, that it will make that will happen to me. You know, it will have a physical effect of like, you know, I'll do an intake of breath of like, wow, that there's something so special about that, mm. um, and it like, almost makes you laugh or it makes you cry or there's there's that moment when you just think what this combination of you know mu of, of words of instruments of voice mm. 
you know, it's magic. It, it, it's it's truly magic. And um, yeah, yeah, it's 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 the that's why yeah, music and especially the, you know music. Then you get it from film as well and things like that. But but music is is very special because it is just that audio medium. Yeah. Well, with a "Don't Go Away," as you've just mentioned, that song, I think that's a prime example of what you've said where. Liam sings through the song and almost as if to kind of get through without wanting to emote the emotes anyway. Because um was it I'm sure there was an interview where he said that that was I mean that was written when you thought that he was had cancer. And yeah. uh, and then Liam kind of choked off as he was singing it and I guess that's like a fine example of what we're saying that like he's like singing with this emotion. You can really hear it at that in the chorus, like he's kind of um, almost his voice is picking up slightly, but he powers through it. Mm. Exactly, yeah. 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 And it's it's I think it's something we talked about when, when you spoke on the podcast actually, and like I gave the example of the Love Actually clip, you know, with Bill Nye. Um, when he's you know, talking about the person he loves and it, you know, being his his manager, the Rebsy Nesbitt character, and um, and it is that it's that masculine thing of like, look, I bloody love you, all right. And, and much as it grieves me to say it, it, it might be that the people I love is in fact you. Like you know, it's all that's kind of the impression I get with um, with Liam. He wouldn't sing it like a, a pure just love song, but he would he'll belt it out and then. But in doing so, kind of, it, it does demonstrate that, that he is feeling that way. Yeah. Well, it, it kind of links, in a way, to the next song that you've listed here, because uh, the next song on the list we've got is Christina The Voyage. And yeah. I, honestly, I did not heard of that song before until you wrote that down, so I had to listen to it this morning. And I was in floods of tears, honestly. Mm. <laughs> I think in combination mm. with um, what you've written about it, like that really, really moved me. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, it is. It's it's funny because I, I sort of, you know, I've talked a lot about um, how I don't like cliche, you know, and and this is this has got a cliche in it, which is, um, you know, using an old, you know, an old-fashioned sort of metaphor where he's talking about the relationship being like a voyage, being like these people going on a, going on a voyage. And, uh, you know, and the chorus is, life is an ocean, love is a boat. And then, um, and the line that always got me as a kid, and the line that gets me now that I've got children of my own, is, um, now look around us, we have our own crew. And, you know, that is just, like, really, really powerful. And, um, yeah, and, and it is, it, it's, um, so it's going back to the Irish folk thing, I mean, there's this, you know, I, I could have picked a, a sillier one, like, you know, Christy Moore does, don't forget your shovel if you want to go to work, and, and you know, stuff like that, really good, fun, silly Irish songs that have meant a lot to me as well, um, or then like the Pogues, you know, I absolutely love the Pogues. Um, you know, Fairy Tale of New York is, is like, you know, it's been overplayed, but that's incredible, like, a pair of brown eyes. I think that that, it's those Irish songs, you know, well, you know, Shane McGowan being Ireland, uh, born in Ireland, then having grown up over here. But, you know, there's something, 
so soulful about them, you know, and it goes back to like Irish poetry and things he found them years ago. But but yeah, I, I've always loved that Christy Moore song, just that he's got such a, um, a delicate, beautiful voice as well. So yeah, it means a lot. Just for the, uh, I might just read out um, those lyrics you just mentioned for the sake of people listening, because mm. um, what the bit you're talking about is the chorus, isn't it? Um, Life is an ocean and love is a boat in troubled water that keeps us afloat. When we started the voyage, there was just me and you. Now gathered round us, we have our own crew. Yeah, it's beautiful. When we started the voyage, there was just me and you. And then when you say that really means something to you, like in terms of would that have um, emerged for you, like as you had your own kids, or did it, did it even hit you before then as well? Yeah, I, th- I think it sort of is a song that always meant a lot. Um, uh, you know, I didn't, I wouldn't say there was many songs that were like, you know, that would really, you know, make me cry or things like that as a kid. I, I didn't really. I know some people like really are moved by music and they use it to sort of um you know to summarize how they're feeling and things like that and i don't think it's i've never been one like that really like like i was describing before it's more it's more of an analytical and then it's like you know there's a there's a moment where it will surprise me but i'm I'm thinking about the song in the song itself it doesn't tend to be songs that really um make me feel a certain way about my own life but i think christine moore's the voyage is definitely one there's also things like, you know, um, Tank Part Salute by Billy Bragg. Um, you know, my dad's still with us, but that's his song about someone who's lost their, you know, it's Billy Bragg singing about his, his dad having died. And, um, you know, that just kills me every time. And I think it's because, you know, I know what it will mean to me uh, later. You know, so uh, it's similar with the, um, you know, with the voyage. You know, it's like, yeah, it's amazing how, you know, it's just, it just makes you think about life and how you kind of, um, you know, uh, it's, it's a funny one because it is it is unusual and it does stick out. And, and so that's why it's, you know, it's made the list. Because um, you said that your mum has um, MS and that your dad's her full-time mm. carer. You said like how he's inspired you um, in his dedication to someone yeah. else. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny because growing up, like, he was your typical kind of, you know, Irish hardworking dad. I mean, we were, you know, I was never hit or anything like that when you hear about the, um, you know, the Gallagher brothers and things, you know, getting beaten. I was never hit or anything, but it was very much like work, pup, you know, you never sort of saw much of him. He would never cook food. I mean, God forbid, like, it would just never ever happen. And whereas then when, you know, mum got worse to the point where, you know, she couldn't really do anything around the house, he just did step up and do it. And there was no kind of, no moaning about it. You know what I mean? It was just like, well, that's what we've got to do. Get on with it. Yeah, and I really, 
you know, I really admire that. And you think, you know, there's a level of selflessness there that's just so admirable. Mm. Do you take that into your own life? Do you find that kind of influencing how you are? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's it's sort of, it's a, a great example, really, of, you know, like I'm married and have been for 16 years. And I think I would always kind of try to help people where I can. And I try to, like, just generally be a good person. Like, you know, and I, and like, especially with people, you know, having this great example of my parents and having, you know, seen my dad basically, you know, just focus his entire world around mum for the last few years. When you, like, you know, there's certain other people, I know, like, different families are different and you have, there's, there's reasons why people get divorced and reasons why people split up. But it's such an incredible example of, like, well, no, you, you don't bail on a person, you know, you stick with it. And, uh, yeah, and that means a lot. Yeah. It does sort of tie in with what we're saying about that song because the concept in the song comes through as well about sticking together and not having a specific destination but that's the whole point of staying with what happened. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm right, right. right. Let's talk about something yeah. entertaining and then we'll, we'll pick it up a bit. Yeah. Alright, so we go into the next, the next song that you had was The Prodigy Out of Space. Yeah, so there we go. So now let's, let's have some fun. So The Prodigy is, uh, you know, I suppose this is kind of, you know, having been really into Michael Jackson and Irish music and, and um, you know, and then sort of other, uh, but not really having been into music as much as Sarah, you know, you know, Michael Jackson and sort of that pop music, like that meaning a lot to me. Um, and, but then nothing was really like my thing other than sort of Michael Jackson, so I posted on my wall. Um, first like big really like bold like wow this is different was um you know rave music really rave music coming through like when we called it rave music we didn't call it dance music it was rave music um, you know and so the, the and the prodigy you know their first album you know with i mean it, it actually opened the door to a lot of these kind of cheesy songs like the mario song the tetris song and the you know because they did charlie which used that sample from the um from the uh, old tv advert um, but yeah, it was just this music from another planet, you know, it's from another world. It's like, what the hell is this? You know, it was so strange and it's so cool. Um, I've talked on the podcast before about, and then, then when Duke Generation was in 94, and just then it going on another step entirely. And you're like, this is just the weirdest music I've ever heard. And it just was so amazing. And it was, it was illicit as well. Like, I remember being on, like, you know, school trip and uh, someone having like, you know, um, the bouncer like, uh, kicks like a mule, you know, your name's not there, you're not coming in, not tonight, not, not tonight, and a juicy red apple is nice. So all these sort of, um, these old rave tunes and just listening, like hearing these tunes, just being like, wow, it was like illicit. It was this like, you know, it wasn't necessarily in the charts, I don't know if was in the charts, but there was all these rave songs that they were hard to get hold of. Mm. And when you heard them, they were like, whoa, this is sort of, uh, you know, it's like sharing around something that's, that's um, uh, illicit is the what is the word. So, yeah, and that was really exciting. And you know, I remember being at um, like the Dickock Youth Club when I'm like 12 or something, and um, you know, and uh, bringing a whistle, you know, and sort of being <laughs> like having a whistle because people would take whistles to raves, <laughs> and uh, probably being a bit of a you know little idiot, you know, but but still just loving you know that that sort of style of music, and. And sort of a similar around that time, then like when sort of 12, 13, 14, before kind of Oasis or any of that came into it, you know, I was listening to a lot of, um, you know, sort of heavier stuff. So I listened to like 
you know, um, Metallica, a bit of Metallica. I never went deep into Metallica, but a bit of them, and then sort of other rockier tracks. I think I mentioned that my um, the first CD single I bought, this is where my head was in 1994, was Stiltskin Inside, you know, from the, the Levi's ad. I thought that was a really rocking, cool piece of music. And then around that time as well, there was like Green Day Dookie and Smash Valley of Spring, Terrorvision's album, which I know is British, but has that much more American feel to it. Um, how, to, how to make friends on it. Um, so yeah, that was really where my head was at in like 1994, a mixture of like dance music with Prodigy <laughs> and other sort of poppier dance music. And then, um, and then the rockier side. And then I was thinking like, why doesn't someone combine this rock kind of music, this really cool with guitars, with dance music. <laughs> and the Prodigy did Joy Generation, and it did. You know, tracks like Voodoo People and Their Law, it did combine the drums and the, uh, the, the guitars and the dance music. And so I was just like, that is just the most exciting music in the world. And I still think, if you listen to Joy Generation today, yeah. that's all the chat about 25 years, definitely maybe. I mean, that is a serious landmark album, Joy Generation. It really is. It just kind of gets you viscerally, doesn't it? And like, just thinking about what you're saying, that's just taking me to thoughts of like the internet because with those raves, uh, I love, I love the fact that people would just have to like hear about it on the grapevine, and you would just mm. turn up like that. Just wouldn't happen now with the internet. Exactly. Yeah. So we move on to Cloudburst Oasis. <laughs> Wake up! There's a new day dawning. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, so this was really the sort of the transformation. Like in High Fidelity, um, John Cusack's character talks about having a punk year zero, right? And it's like when people shave their heads and paint punks in, like you know, here having heard the Pistols for the first time or whatever. I haven't got a, you know, a I heard Oasis and my life changed story like some people have. Um, Oasis were like in the background. It's like one of those other sort of indie bands like the Charlatans and Spiral Carpets and I would see them on like Channel 4, the chart show on a, you know, on a Saturday morning but I'd be like, if it came up like the indie chart, I'd be like, oh, indie music, it's boring, you know, and it just didn't, it was rock and dance were the two charts I wanted to see uh, in like, like 93, 94. Um, and so it didn't really do it for me and it was only a gradual thing that, you know, um, that sort of then more and more tracks would come out, a few other friends got into them. Um, my friend Will, who I've mentioned on the podcast before, he's been on a bit, um, he sort of got uh, a tape, his bro older brother had all the Oasis singles on the album, and he sort of made a tape, and so this tape got retaped and passed around everyone. Mm -hmm. And so for me, like the image of uh, you know, Cloudburst is, you know, wake up, there's a new day dawning. So I went and, you know, this, this was me now, you know, I went and sort of had my hair cut, changed that to, you know, having had curtains, you know, sort of <laughs> chop those curtains off and I had like brushed it forward um, to be like, uh, to look like me. Um, and uh, yeah, just changed the attitude and the way I dressed. And, and um, yeah, and it, it really was, it, so it wasn't a, an immediate thing, but it was a, by the time we get to sort of late 94, I mean, there's some very specific things, like obviously getting your hair cut. Mm -hmm. But yeah, by the time we get then around to like cigarettes and alcohol, whatever, and then March, so by the time some might say it comes out in March 1995, I mean, all of us were just so ready to just be completely, you know, to ready to be bowled over by this band, really. So, yeah, <laughs> it was massive. Do you find yourself singing that uh, line, wake up, there's a new day dawning every morning when the sun shines? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, not every morning, I'd say. 
Do you? No, but there are there are some days though where if it's a particularly nice morning or the sun is rising or I'm going for a walk and the sun is shining, that song will pop it into my head. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, that does make sense. There's certain songs that have a. Like I remember when I spoke to um, hasn't come out yet. Well, I put it on my Patreon, uh, my side of it. But uh, I was, I've done an interview with another podcast called uh, Husey, and uh, he talks about Morning Glory. You know, another sunny afternoon walking to the sound of my favourite tune. And it is that interplay of lyrics and music. If you can have, you have your headphones on and, um, you know, if the lyrics can, can sort of tie in with your, with how you're feeling in that moment. Yeah. It works really, really well. Yeah. So we've got, uh, next on the list, we've got menswear daydreamer and you talk about singing along to this, uh, song at a party. Yeah. So, so basically, you know, as I say, I'd always been a bit of a show off. I'd always thought, you know, I thought I had a bit of a voice and, and sort of, um, you know, I was always willing to show off and stuff and, and was always liked to be in the centre of attention. Um, I didn't really do school, I did school plays at primary school and then kind of I stepped away from doing school plays. So I didn't really ever get involved in any sort of school plays around dramatics again um, until sort of six foot. But so I'm in, um, you know, my friend's world who I said about the definitely maybe tape. He's sort of, uh, we were around his house, there's a few people around. And he was, he played the bass, so he was, he had Daydreamer by Menswork playing, he was just playing the bass line along to it, and then we were recording. And a couple of other people had done some sort of silly recordings, different songs, and like, you know, just making up stupid lyrics over songs and things like that. And then, and then we were doing like Daydreamer by Menswear, and I just started doing like my full on sort of Johnny Dean impression. You know, in your arms, I'm quietly breathing, you know, it was sort of um, just playing up the way he performs the song. Um, it's not even sung, it's, it's sort of a spoken song really, but, but I just remember really enjoying it and everyone just, you know, laughing and having a laugh with it. And then, yeah, and then like the tape was sort of going around like, oh god, cool, you know, James is singing, uh, and I was like, no, well, yeah, I am singing, but I think it's really good actually, I'm <laughs> being quite proud of it. And I think that's where the seeds of, hmm, maybe I could be in a band sort of started from there. Um, and then we, we sort of, as a part of a sort of GCSE new, uh, English project, me and Joel, who we've been sort of friends with on and off over the years, we sort of ended up um, doing this sort of, um, you know, when we were supposed to be off rehearsing for our like GCSE, you know, drama thing, actually we were going off and messing around and writing stupid songs. And we were writing stupid songs, taking the mick out of the teachers and other people in our class. It wasn't like deliberately trying to write a masterpiece. But, you know, we would sort of, it was that idea of he's sitting at the piano and, and we're bashing it out and coming up with sort of stupid lyrics. Um, and so, so we did that, you know, uh, sort of with what, up to GCSEs in like 1995, 96. And then summer of 96, I went to Nebworth. Um, and, you know, it was obviously a transformative day and absolutely magic and, you know, everything that everyone says about it. Um, coming back on, um, on the Monday, so this is we're in the middle of summer holidays, and I wasn't really outside of school friends with Joel, um, but you know, I was like, no, I'm gonna, no, I really want to think about this band thing. So I phoned him up, and I was like, you know, um, I think we should combine our musical talents. <laughs> and his thought was, what musical talent have you got? Because no. <laughs> I have no <laughs> musical talent. But but what I had was attitude, you know, mm. and and the desire to sort of do it. And so we're like, okay, so, so Joel played the piano and could write songs, because, you know, we'd written these sort of silly sort of songs, but, but then he was like, okay, well, I'll, I'll write some songs. And, um, and yeah, and then, and he sort of went off and learned to play the guitar in about five minutes flat, um, because he's a bloody genius that 
bastard. And then, um, yeah, and then we got a couple of other friends who also, like, you know, could play guitar. And then we sort of had our first sort of couple of practices, really. And that was magic. You know, it was amazing to be making music. Um, and we always knew that, that Joel's friend from cricket, this French guy called Romain, had a drum kit and he could play drums. So we sort of, it took us a, a few weeks to sort of get it arranged. But then we finally got him involved. And then suddenly, you know, to be playing music with, with the drums and with the, you know, with the, all the guitars going and full blast and singing, it was just the most exciting thing in the world. Yeah. So anyone that's, you know, anyone that's, that sort of listens to this is, you know, younger. Or anyone, but anyway, even older people, but like, you know, especially if you're younger, to, to make music, to be in a band with people playing, it's just the most exciting thing in the world. And yeah, and then so from then in August 96, we played our first gig in, I think, uh, early 97, I think. And um, yeah, we did like um, sort of local village halls, we would just book them out and sell tickets. Um, and then, uh, yeah, and then through to, you know, then playing gigs in sort of Oxford and Reading and a few in London and things like that. But but yeah, it sort of started from there really. Mm. All, it all goes back to Menswear Daydreamer in Will Cooper's <laughs> uh, bedroom. So, <laughs> hats off to Menswear Daydreamer. But I have to say, like, uh, listening to the full version of uh, Shine On that you sent me, when you compare it to songs now, it pisses all over them, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> because <laughs> it reminds me of... Uh, because obviously it's got a clear Oasis influence in there, but at the same time, it's done really well um, and it's really melodic. And I just, I just thought, oh, this is great. Like, yeah, you know. Mm. Well, the one thing we had, I mean, you know, we couldn't really play that well. I can, I can't really sing. I can hold a tune, but I can't really sing particularly well. Um, but what we had was Joel's songs, and Joel is a really, really good songwriter. Mm. Um, he can, you know, he, he knows music inside out, having studied it and, and having, you know, played piano from a, to a really high degree and then transferred it over to guitar. And so he can write songs, like, easily. He can put through these really, really melodic songs. It's just a talent we've got. Um, that he could just knock out songs anytime he wants. Um, and then, yeah, and, and so we always knew we had good songs. Um, so it's similar to racing that way because none of us could really play that well. I mean, the drummer was pretty good. Joel was, became a pretty good guitar player, but you know the other guys they were fine, you know, but they weren't at a decent level. Where you know, like when we split up, I mean, a few other guys carried on and sort of a couple of different names for a bit, but no one then went on to be in other bands because it wouldn't be the same. You know, I think when you're in your band with your schoolmates, it doesn't really matter if you're not that good because you're in your band with your schoolmates, whereas people have said to me, like, oh, have you joined another band? I'm like, no, it wouldn't be the same. Like, I, and I'm not good enough. If I was auditioned with a bunch of singers, there's no way I'd get picked, you know. Um, but but actually, with the mates, it was fine. It's like Ian Brown wouldn't have got into another band if he'd auditioned, but, you know, with his mates, he was the best person for that job. So um, I, I think I'm a little bit better than Ian Brown, to be fair. But, um, <laughs> but yeah. yeah. No, so we did have good songs, and, and, and Shine On's a good example of that. shame we didn't record that many you know we've, we've recorded like nine songs or something with with me singing um, 
uh, not really that many actually, uh, yeah, about eight or nine songs of me singing. Um, the first one we did, the recording didn't turn out that great, and the, the second one that, that Shine On comes from, which is, you know, uses the Oasis podcast intro. Um, yeah, no, we, we were really proud of it, we were really proud of that recording, and, and we did, you know, we did have this hope that something would come from it, that we would maybe get signed. Uh, my drummer's stepdad was in the music industry. Um, he was like a, a conductor and arranger for like Shirley Bassey and he played on loads of records as a session guitarist in, from the 60s all the way through to modern day. So we always had an in and we always thought we might make it but you know basically the, the problem was everyone as I think it happened with a lot of bands, everyone kind of at 18, 19 went all their separate ways to different universities and stuff and then it was just too hard to kind of mm. keep the rehearsals going. And also you, you sort of, you're dragging along your sort of five mates again to another show, you know, at some crappy little venue and you're like, oh, I can't really, can we really be asked to keep this going if you don't get signed? And, and also you don't have the internet then. So now there's so much more opportunity to sort of uh, engage with people through the internet. Whereas back then it was like, literally, how are we going to, how do we get ourselves known? It's impossible. It would have to be, you know, do you get mentioned in the local music magazine or something? But even then it's like, well, are they actually then going to come out and see you? It just wouldn't happen. So, um, yeah. Would, would you, so, would yeah, you have liked it to have like developed and get signed and um, you become like a proper... Oh, yeah. yeah. Absolutely, a million percent. I mean, it would have been, you know, if that, that's a, an absolute dream. I mean, looking back now, like, with the fact that I've got, like, three children and things like that, if I could go back and change history, I wouldn't, because, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to jeopardise what I've got, kind of thing. But, but actually, when I think about, um, yeah, I mean, if I could tick the box to say, do you want Alan McGee to turn up to your <laughs> thing and sign you? I'd say, well, yes, please. You know, that would have been the, that would have been the, the ultimate greatest possible thing to happen. Mm. Um, you know, and, and it could have happened in an, a, with another set of circumstances because, you know, we have got the songs mm. and, and Joel, um, you know, ended up almost sort of getting a management deal or writing for other artists for a bit because his songs are so good. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we knew we always had that, but, you know, we, we just didn't really try that hard. You know, we were always kind of like, you know, I think a lot of people that, you know, they, they just hunkered down, they went on the dole, you know, they lived in a squat and rehearsed for years. That was never going to happen with us. We were all too, like, you know, posh, lower working, lower middle class kids who were going to go off and go to university and get boring jobs. So, so yeah, hence, hence we didn't make it. Whereas other bands from Manchester that, you know, probably aren't as, weren't as good as we did. I sometimes think that's the whole story of itself, of this sea of bands, just like yours, because the story that you're describing sounds so similar to, like, the path and trajectory of like say my brother like he was in bands with um his schoolmates as well and i just you know all these bands that sort of did exactly what you did but never quite made it but who are all mm. quite amazing is a story in itself that i would love to, to hear about <laughs> you know? yeah yeah I, mean, it's, I think it'd be an interesting podcast thing like the, the you know the bands that never were and, and i mean it probably people that got a bit further than us you know like people that were signed and then something went wrong and things like that so that, that they actually did make um you know got a little bit further on than we did but i think there's a like a, a good podcast idea there katie yeah. <laughs> i'll add that as a little sideline um great so just out of curiosity you you said your your friend's stepdad in the band worked with shirley bassey he wasn't called tony colton was he no no, okay. no he's, he's called colin green oh, okay, yeah. fair enough. he was in the he was in georgie fame's band mm. in the 60s okay. 
and uh, and he went on. He plays guitar on your song by Elton John. He played like on loads and loads of really famous records, and um, yeah. And so we always, you know, you know, there's always that chance. There's always that chance. And he would come and watch us practice and just be like, "No, you got to keep practicing. You got to keep practicing." We would be like, "Oh, can't you just sign us? Now? <laughs> can't you just like introduce us?" And he's like, "No, no, no. Keep going. Keep going." And then, but yeah, we couldn't keep going because we all had to, you know. Well, we could have, but we didn't. You know, we chose to sort of go off on all our different ways. But um, yeah, no, it was magic. I, I'd never um, give up those days. It was such a, some of the best days of my life. And what was really brilliant was bringing it round full circle. May this year at the Water Rats, you know, doing my first yeah. Oasis podcast live, where then I sort of spoke to. You know, because it, it originally wasn't going to be an Oasis podcast live. It was just originally we were saying we should just meet up the old guys from the band. We're just going to meet up and go for a drink. And we were like, okay, well, if we're going to meet up and go for a drink, why don't we time it and go to like an Oasis tribute show? Because that's, you know, we all still love Oasis. And I was like, all right, well, if I'm going to go to an Oasis tribute show, well, why don't I book it myself? Because I know all the best Oasis tribute bands. I'll just book one. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, if we're going to book one, why not make it an official Oasis podcast meetup? All right. And then literally just as we we're sort of contacting a couple of venues to look into it Tony McCarroll messages and says you know I'm, I'm looking to do these Q&A's are you into it and I was like brilliant you know so we were like, so so it sort of really organically moved from what was just going to be us lads going out for a drink to um, yeah and then it was suddenly this big Oasis podcast live thing and so and so I was like right well you know almost like is it a joke to Joel like well should we do a few Oasis songs like me and you and you know maybe get Rom to drum uh, I think it would have been too much hassle to get like the you know the other people to come and play the bass and rhythm and things because then it's you know it's, it's tricky you know, then you need proper rehearsal time but me and Joel can you know we know Oasis songs so well and the drummer can just lock in so literally with like you know, me and Joel sort of met up twice, I think, and had a chat through and sort of like, okay, fine. So he had a couple of slightly different arrangements for these Oasis songs. And I was like, yeah, okay, fine. And then him and the drummer didn't even practice at all. Um, they just like turned up on the night and were like, right, yeah, fine. And then it was so funny because Remain, the drummer, said, yeah, yeah, it's funny. I had to like get the kit down from the loft. I haven't played it for like 15 years. <laughs> and I was like, what? We're about to play in front of 200 people, including Tony McCarroll, <laughs> and you haven't even had a practice, and it's been 15 years since you held some drumsticks. <laughs> yeah, it'll be fine. We'll figure it out. <laughs> so, yeah. So that's that's how we roll. Yeah. Oh, why not? And in the end, you had Tony McCarroll playing drums, so it all just kept going. Yes, yeah, yeah it was very special. Okay, so the next song on the list is The Beatles' Paperback Writer. Yeah, basically, um, The Beatles, I mean, my mum was a big Beatles fan, sort of as a, as a kid, but um, she was sort of born 1950, so she was like 12 when they came out. But she, it was only later on, like years later, she was like, yeah, I thought The Beatles went a bit weird, <laughs> you know, and she kind of went off them when they sort of got out of the teeny bop era, sort of into the later 60s, she wasn't really as into them anymore. And, um, you know, and the whole drugs thing, you know, she, it just, I don't think a lot of the people around the country sort of knew about that really. They sort of passed them by. It was just like the Beatles had gone a bit weird. So yeah, the Beatles are always there. And I think it's what, it, it's funny. I think that we grew up like post Oasis where, you know, the Beatles were this iconic thing and the most and the greatest band of all time. But I don't think back in the like 80s and early 90s, they were seen as that. I think like people respect them as being the biggest and, and but, but I don't think they were like number one, the greatest, the, the, you know, I think it was actually the anthology coming out and then the, you know, and sort of 
people like Oasis and Blur going back to big them up all the time, that then they have attained this status. I think we look back with a sort of a slightly different view now because of what sort of happened in the 90s. Mm. But anyway, so so yeah, so I had... Um, I kind of knew, having got into Oasis, right, well, I need to get into the Beatles, right? That's kind of very clear. You know, they've given you the signpost. You have to listen to the Beatles. And then the Who, the Small Faces, the Kinks, like the Jam. You know, I was like, right, those are the bands I've got to go and find and buy best ofs of, basically. Um, And so, and it was also watching the Beatles anthology was was a big thing on on TV. But then the actual first Beatles stuff I got that was mine was um, the Past Masters volume t- Volumes 1 and 2 collection. So what that collates is all the stuff that isn't on the main studio albums. So once you've got Past Masters and the albums, you've got pretty much everything. So it was a really, really interesting way to get into the Beatles because you've got this real snapshot of their career from like the early singles that weren't on albums through to like you know weird stuff like You Know My Name, Look Up The Number and, and these things um, later on. But the big thing for me was like the big singles that you know like paperback writer and rain and uh, hey jude was on there and things like that so it was a really interesting kind of retrospective of the beatles for me to kind of get into and then kind of from there i sort of you know borrowed you know one of my siblings had sergeant pepper on, on vinyl so i like nick that and um you know and then i sort of dug into them a bit deeper but but yeah for my sort of earliest sort of getting into the beatles memory is kind of listening to those past masters cassettes and especially that mid period which is actually the you know the period of oasis uh, period of the beatles that oasis are obsessed with yeah. um which is that kind of revolver period um with you know rain and paperback writer come under that um come under that uh, sort of era as well so yeah really big yeah and what is it about paperback writer specifically that you really like or draws you to that song well i think it's um i mean the the bass line and the energy and the the vocals and the guitars <laughs> so <laughs> basically everything but like um you know it's got such an energy about it and the the riff is incredible that goes all the way through the bass line is incredible and you know it was sort of a, a recorded at the same time as rain and they've both got these you know mccartney is just at his absolute peak at this point with his bass playing and, and with his writing as well and um yeah, it's just got such energy to it, and it's so fun, you know, and joyous, like we talked earlier about, you know, um, element of humour in music, and that's massive mm. for me, and that and that was here as well. Um, I think it was known as the first Beatles song that wasn't a love song, you know, it's <laughs> about something, something other than love, um, you know, which is, you know, a guy writing a book, but... Um, yeah, and, and I just, uh, yeah, I love it. It's got such an incredible riff and it's just so, yeah, it's it's really sums up that mid-period for me when they were coming away from the sort of the love me do and, and I want to hold your hand sort of stuff, changing it up a bit, um, mm. but they were still full of that exuberance and pop sort of fun. Mm. Are you, would you say you're more McCartney or Lennon? Percy or George, oh. maybe. <laughs> Katie, what a thing to say! You can't make me say Aww. that. But you can ask next. Which one of my kids do I prefer? No, oh, like, no. Um, <laughs> no, it's it's really uh, that's sort of imp- impossible for me. Really, it, okay. it's. Um, I mean, <laughs> I you know I love them, but <laughs> I'm joking. It's it's all good. Like um, the one thing I would say is that I think that George's guitar playing, especially in the early years. I'm not a massive fan of. Mm. I think there's a number of sort of solos in the early songs where you know you think, really, George, is that the best you can do? And I think they get a pass because it's the Beatles and anything that was done by the Beatles is officially perfect. But 
it's not. There's a few of those early guitar solos, and you think, yeah. and I can imagine sort of Paul sitting in the background, you know, fuming and just wishing he could just grab the lead guitar and do it because you know he was a far better lead guitar player than George. But um, yeah, but then in terms of songwriters, I mean, I probably gravitate to Paul's songs the most. I'd say I'd say I probably enjoy Paul's songs the most, but then I respect John's songs more maybe but you know I can't they're, they're, there's so many um, and they're all so brilliant mm. that um, yeah yeah I can't really choose what makes you that's I think that's really interesting the difference between enjoyment and respect like what makes you mm. respect John and enjoy Paul that's made me really curious <laughs> <laughs> well something like um, you know you could make a playlist of McCartney kind of summer songs, and I think I have. So, you know, Got To Get You Into My Life, Good Day Sunshine, um, oh, I'm blanking now, but, you know, there's so many songs that are just really good fun like that that John doesn't necessarily write. Everything he writes tends to have a, an element of cynicism about it or um, there's a quirkiness, a different something different from it. Um, whereas like something like, um, you know, I was listening to Abbey Road yesterday all the way through and, and like, as you go through John's songs on there, you've got like, I want you, she's so heavy, which is, you know, some people think it's brilliant. Some people think it's boring. I think Mm. it's a bit of the both, but you know, Paul wouldn't have done that. This like seven minute weird jam that goes through, he's just got this one like yearning, screaming kind of vocal and then kind of goes through these different sections but just repeating the same thing in various ways similar to like a a jazz kind of improvisation you think that's brilliant in its own way but then you have Maxwell Silverhammer which is you know which is sort of stupid and then obviously you've got the second half of Abbey Road which is just which is primarily Paul with a couple of bits from John thrown in which is I think like peak music you know I don't think anything's reach the heights of the Abbey Road medley in in rock and pop. I think that's probably the best music ever made and I think that's, you know, Paul is the main architect of that. So there's there's something about John's stuff that's got like a, you know, a a cynical edge to it or there's a quirkiness. Something I was saying the other day to someone is is the the difference in lyrics as well. When John writes something, uh, like John writes gibberish, but John writes gibberish in kind of an Edward Lear clever way you know it goes back to his like book Spaniard in the Works and and A Hard Day's Right where he's deliberately playing with metaphor and deliberately making it weird you know and it's brilliant and so he'll say something like um, in uh, Come Together you know got to be good looking because you're so hard to see you know something like that it's just such a clever little play on words whereas Paul does clever plays on words but they tend to be more kind of cheesy rather than rather than um subversive but mm. anyway there you go i could talk about the yeah. beatles for a week but <laughs> yeah but i think i guess it goes back to that kind of divide between is it technical skill and artistry that matters or is it emotion and passion mm. that matters when you're listening to songs and i guess you're kind of describing them having between the two of them they contain both um, but also um, what's kind of interesting as well, because you, you talk about your love of the Beatles and how much you love them and you love Oasis. And I'm thinking about the nostalgia factor because you wouldn't have the nostalgia necessarily for the Beatles. Whereas, say, like 
your mum or like people who were children of the mm. 60s will remember that time so there's an element of kind of association so I think it's quite intriguing the way that even when you take away that association and nostalgia you're still left with the music that you love yeah yeah I mean as I say I didn't you know I wasn't there when they came out and you know I listened to a lot of Beatles podcasts and one of the things that comes up from people that lived through it is they often associate the Beatles with Christmas because a lot of their albums came out around Christmas time um which is like you know if you've I, you know, I don't associate, you know, I associate, um, you know, certain albums I associate with Be Here Now by Oasis with the summer because it came out in August, you know, and things like mm. that. Whereas I don't associate any of the Beatles albums with a particular time because they came out before I was born. So uh, I think that's really interesting when you people that do have those associations. But no, I think it's it's funny with the Beatles because it's been you know ever you know since i kind of really got into them in the late 60s obviously it's then shapes other parts of your life and it might remind you a certain song might ride you of a road trip you went on or you know remind you of like um you know like i remember listening through i deliberately said i'm going to listen to the white album all the way through like mm-hmm. that's what i'm going to do this evening i'm just going to do it when i'm like 16 and then and i got to revolution 9 and i was like oh god <laughs> you know, I, I really want to listen to this whole thing all the way through but this is a struggle um you know so i've still got memories and nostalgia connected to those songs mm-hmm. and they still mean so much to me and they always will but it's not the same as you know obviously the things that i discovered when i was a you know um, that i was living through them coming out so yeah yeah it's interesting mm. do you think in another in another 30 years time people will be as obsessed still what with the Beatles yeah (laughs) I think it's um I mean I think the music will always be there and it's always a go-to um I think that the the difference is you know we've been through a strange period in the last few years with the with the this growth of podcasts this growth of analysis and with um you know, with the technology meaning that we are now able to discover things, we're able to like pull these records apart and really dig into them and understand them a bit better. So that's been a big thing in the last few years. You know, you can get Beatles isolated tracks now relatively easily um, through the rock band games and things like that. So, so we've reached this period because of this technology opening things up in a way we never had before. And also, you know, people discovering old... You know, it used to be if you found an old Beatles Top of the Pop performance or something, it was like on a VHS tape and you'd have to buy it at a fair and, you know, and that was about it. Whereas now it's like this stuff's on YouTube, you know, it's all, everything's out there and available to get. And so mm. I think this has been a big period for rediscovery of these sort of bands because of those changes in the last few years. I don't, in sort of 30 years, I think they'll still always be there and be a part of my life, but I don't think that element of, you know, analysis, it's mm. going to have to fade away a bit because, you know, I'm, I'm at the point now, whereas I've kind of have got a bit bored of listening to Beatles podcasts now, I can kind of guess when someone starts talking about a song, I'm like, okay, they're probably going to make that point, and they do, so I'm like, yeah, fine, I've kind of... I've I've sort of heard enough of that now, and that's what something I worry about with the with the Oasis podcast is that you know I don't want to keep repeating myself, and I don't mm. want to keep having guests come on and say the same thing yeah. because it will just get bit get boring. So that's why I really try and mix it up because I've kind of gone through that level of like yeah I've kind of had enough of that now. I can mm. sort of dig into someone else. So that's sort of you've got to try and keep it fresh. 
It's definitely happening, isn't it? Because I, I do notice, like, even on, like, radio shows, like, even the 25th anniversary of Definitely Maybe, I think I heard the same stories being told, like, on each on each radio station about 20 times. Like, I was, I was happy to hear them, but it is... It is that kind of thing. I think I agree with you that people can end up getting, I don't know, getting at risk of just repeating mantras or saying things without really knowing why they're saying them and just buying into that kind of narrative but without questioning it or changing it or looking at it on a different Mm. lens yeah no well that's that's great yeah that's really i think that's really true and the um and what you tend to find as well is like you know different people around the world have got different stories about it and that's why you know when i interviewed you for the oasis podcast i think people are really connected to a lot of people because it was a, a really interesting story of what happened to you at that time and how it connected to other things in your life and things whereas so many people were just like oh mate i loved them they were amazing i saw them at Wembley or I saw them at it was amazing I'm like okay that's great what what else you know and you've like someone said to me like someone messaged me oh you should like you know find people that went to all the different like really important gigs and interview them about it I'm like but everyone if you went to see Oasis there's a very good chance you were drunk mm. and if you weren't <laughs> and so you've forgotten it you know what were they like oh amazing okay or if it's one of the big important gigs it's it's been recorded right so so we've all seen it so there's no point oh yeah it was incredible when uh noel did this thing in argentina yeah i know we've seen it you know so so it's not it's not that like they're there so what i always find more interesting is the actual story well tell me the story of what happened did you lose your mate you know did you you know like in nebworth like i've might have told the story in the podcast before that you know i lost my mate we arrived in nebworth i lost my mates like halfway through met up with them again sort of finding the bus and the getting the bus out was an absolute nightmare and i had cramp in my leg and you know that to me is far more interesting than oh mate yeah when they did live forever it was amazing well yeah i, I know it was amazing i've seen it you know so yeah. but anyway there you go well, also I, there was one episode you did i i really loved it i think it was with simon mason where he spoke about that moment where everyone was rushing into the vip area and he he walked away it was so sad but also like just a kind of zooming in on in amongst those thousands of people zooming in on one person's emotional turmoil in that moment i just thought that that was brilliant you know as, as sad as the story is but just like you said those sorts of stories would never get told otherwise but yeah. yeah, it was a very cinematic um, image that that he painted. Neil, he's a great writer. His book is excellent. You should get him on your podcast. But but <laughs> just for people listening that don't know, Simon was basically like Oasis's drug dealer for the first couple of years, <laughs> and was a really important part of their inner circle. He's known as the Cat in the Hat, and um, yeah, his book is uh, is really essential reading. A very very interesting tale, not just about Oasis, but about him and and um, him overcoming drugs and all that sort of stuff. But but yeah, this great image of you know him realizing he'd forgotten his heroin, so leaving Nebworth as everyone else is going in and he's walking out because he's got to try and score some heroin. So he's going to miss this most important cultural gig, you know, when he had all these VIP passes. And I think he said he just took off his VIP passes and just handed them to some young kid like, mm-hmm. there you go, mate, it's all a load of bollocks or something like that. And I think, whoa, what, a, what an image that was. But yeah. yeah. And then yeah, that kid, yeah. imagine that kid's story when he tells it like some random guy gave him his passes and he thought he yeah. was in luck. Like, I wonder where that kid is, you know, well, not I so know, much a kid I anymore. Know. 
if you're out there, whoever that kid is, let, let's interview you because that's fascinating. But um, yeah, crazy. Yeah, actually, I was because um, we're still talking about the Beatles, and it's just reminding me of that. There's this film I remember watching as a child. It was in my grandma's house. And it was called Secrets, and it had Danny Minogue in it. And every time I mention this to anybody else, no one knows what the hell I'm talking about, but it definitely existed, Um, which is a a story about the Beatles playing in Australia. It was footage of a real-life live concert, but it was a fictional story based around that concert where you had five teenagers who ran away from home to go and see the Beatles, but they all get trapped in a hotel and they get trapped underneath on like the basement and they don't know mm. if they're going to ever be let out or come out alive <laughs> so they all they all share their secrets with each other and Danny Minogue played she played a 16 year old uh, teenager who'd run away from a convent and she was obsessed with Paul McCartney and she was trying to explain to everyone why she loves Paul McCartney Um, (laughs) and then uh, there was one guy who was an Elvis fan and he hated the Beatles and the only reason he came was to see what all the fuss was about and they all get into like in the end it's like this story where he ends up falling in love with the Beatles too but it was such a good film and uh, no one I know has ever watched it (laughs) no I think I think you mentioned this to me before and I think I looked it up and found it but yeah so it does exist but no I've never seen it yeah. I've never seen it. I'll have to oh. dig it out. Yeah, if anyone knows of it, like, yeah, watch it. It's it's really good. <laughs> All right. Um, did you want to say anything else about the Beatles, or did you want? No, to I think that we've you know we say enough about the Beatles. <laughs> yeah. The Beatles get talked about enough. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we we um the next on the list was Vision Shine On, um which we've spoken about, but there are some extra things that you haven't mentioned yet, such as who you modelled yourself on when you were a teenager. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I suppose that, like, um, you know, there was a, a sort of a definitely, I definitely made kind of a fashion change, as a lot of us did. You know, I kind of had, you know, my hair naturally sort of grows forward and straightforward, so that was kind of a, a natural thing that I grew up with my hair like that. And then, but then into sort of the, the early 90s, the sort of the fashionable look was sort of uh, curtains, right? So I had, like, my hair in curtains until I was, like, you know, 14, 15, then when Oasis come along, I was like, you know, I thought I was making a huge move by like brushing my hair forward, mm-hmm. you know, and I went to school today, like, you know, the next day thinking like everyone's going to notice I brushed my hair forward. Of course, no one noticed at all. And I was like, oh, OK. But then, you know, the next time I, I went and got my hair cut, I took a picture of Liam in from uh, Sugar magazine. I think it was from like owned by my. Um, yeah, I think it was. I think it was a Sugar magazine owned by my um, my friend's sister. I think, and I was like, ripped that out and said like, okay, I want my hair like that. And uh, yeah, and so, so yes, it was a quite easy haircut for me to pull off. But, um, and then when I sort of joined the band, like it was, you know, I, I was always going to be the singer and obviously I can't play guitar well enough to play guitar on stage. So it was going to be, okay, you know, a singer, but I didn't want to just stand there like Liam and I'm a, you know, a bit of an idiot. And I also loved pulp you know uh and jarvis was like a massive hero to me so so i think that my kind of look was kind of liam the arrogance of liam with sort of the the silliness of jarvis bit of like the manic of manicness of damon because damon would like jump on top of you know speakers and things like that in those days he was a bit manic i would be kind of a bit nuts on stage um 
and also a bit like a, a feminine kind of Richie, Richie and Nikki mm. from the Manics, like the sort of glitter twins thing. I sort of would like, um, you know, put on makeup and yeah, like <laughs> girlfriend at the time put on like yeah, you know, put on eyeliner and and mm. um, things like that because I was a massive Manics fan as well, and um, you know, and have and just to wind people up because I think when you're playing pub gigs, mm. you know, and just back rooms in bars in you know at Oxford, Reading is where we sort of tended to play. You know, you'd be like eight people there. You know, say there'd be eight people there f- to see us. Say twelve people to see the, you know, see one of the other bands, and then a couple of people that might just be randomly sitting there, and they'd just be sitting there and not really paying attention. So you just want to do something different <laughs> to get people's attention. So I would like deliberately be quite, um, you know, antagonistic on stage. You know, I, I deliberately sort of would kind of annoy people just to get a bit of tension going or a bit of a, you know something happening and so um even like we are probably our best gig that i'm really pleased it wasn't recorded because in our memories it's now like a magical amazing we were absolutely brilliant it was our first gig we played in london um at the rock garden which is now gone yeah and i had like a um you know i had a, a t-shirt that said you know we were supporting and i whatever i was wearing underneath i was wearing a t-shirt that said follow that <laughs> and so so I sort of took off my main t-shirt and then stood on the stage and wandered over to the side of the stage where the where the next band were playing like pointed at my t-shirt like follow that and then walked up stage so so I was just really kind of arrogant but also you know playing with um playing with like slogans and and silly stuff that like the the, the you know that Richie and Nicky would do yeah. so yeah so a bit of like a, an amalgamation of all those sort of all of my Britpop icons really in that sense, you're you're a bit like Noel then, because Noel kind of, or that he was, you know, that sense of kind of not really caring what other people think, but also provoking them a bit. <laughs> I feel like yeah. that's quite Noel. Yeah, well, it's definitely there's that arrogance of like, you know, and I think there's more, I suppose, more Liam in the way that Liam would mm. stare down the crowd. You know, oh. I would just stand there so arrogant and be like you know i know our music is great but you know it, it's a bit a little bit difficult when you know when the people are going out of tune and, sort of, and, and like you know and, and sort of missing notes and things but you know so it doesn't quite have the same ring you kind of have to back it up but um yeah no i definitely had that you know i changed lyrics and i but also you know like liam used to annoy noel he'd like wander over to him and like yeah. grab grab his ass or like put his arm around him and things i'd always do things like that to the other guys in the band and, and it would just sort of annoy them be like get off like you know i need to concentrate but um i just find that hilarious and then the other the, the other one the other little story that i remember we we played um the alley cat in reading which is like a decent size um, little venue in Reading and we played the night after Blur Blur played it as a warm up oh, wow. for Reading Festival and so we played it like you know we I think we said that we supported Blur but we were just like you know 24 hours earlier or something <laughs> so yeah but um, but the thing is that was the first time we played on like a proper stage with proper lighting and like mm-hmm. the lights going off and you know on and off and the guys it, it, like the guys playing guitar it really messed them up because you know, they were sort of playing and then suddenly all the lights went out and they'd never practiced like with the lights out before. <laughs> and so so yeah, they were completely thrown. But it's like I suppose that's something not having you know, I suppose when people get to a certain level in a band, you have to kind of practice that because we'd never known you know, that had never happened to us before. But I remember that being a, a really funny one. But anyway, there you go. What do you think it was that gave you that confidence to be like that? Do you think it was just a case of seeing it in those rock stars or did you did you already have it anyway like a sort of internal confidence 
Yeah, I mean, I was always like a cocky, cocky, confident little idiot, really. And I think, you know, it might come from being the youngest, like being the youngest child of four. Like I've always had that kind of, you know, I'd always sort of be a bit of a show off and be willing to sort of, you know, um, entertain entertain the older siblings and try and you know maybe attention seeking or whatever so I think there's definitely a part of that you can see a lot of lead singers you know Liam being a good example are youngest and so I think that's definitely there but no I would do things like you know perform at um you know kids you know haven holiday camp but things like that when I was like a little kid doing Michael Jackson dancing or whatever so I always enjoyed being on the stage and, and messing around and I think having a band there then just gave you that sort of um you know gave you the backup to do that really rather than try and do stand-up comedy or, or acting or something like that I think having the band there just made it uh, ideal really really suited me nowadays would you say you're more of a Liam Jarvis Damon or Richie Manick <laughs> <laughs> well I'm still here so I'm not yeah, a Richie Manick yeah <laughs> who am I more like now um I don't know. I, I really like what Jarvis has become, really. Jarvis seems to be a cool guy now. He lives over in Paris and kind of he's got his family and sort of, you know, he's got a big old beard and stuff. So, yeah, I'm probably I'm probably more aligned to a Jarvis now, I'd say. Cool. Do you know what, to my shame, I actually think I know what picture you're referring to in Sugar magazine because I think <laughs> I think I probably had the same copy of Sugar at the time. Was oh, really? It, okay. Was it the one where Liam's um, wearing a leather jacket and he's got a kind of paisley shirt on and it's like mm. a, a jill fermanovsky picture i think or uh one where don't. they're in paris and, uh, i don't know i know i know exactly what you think of i don't know i honestly can't remember now yeah. but yeah <laughs> possibly it's very possible you kind of reminded me of sugar thinking what a thing it was in those days it's it's i don't even know if it's still i think it is still around but um that's a huge magazine in the 90s that all the teenage girls Loved sugar mm. or bliss. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, there were so many. I mean, that's the thing pre-internet. So, like, you you know, you had Smash Hits as well. I mean, Smash Hits was great because you would get lyrics. Mm. Um, you know, so I was definitely had had that period of getting Smash Hits, and then and then went into sort of Enemy and Melody Maker, and then Select was massive. You know, but but um, yeah, yeah. No, it mm. is. It's you know, obviously, then the internet's kind of killed that, but. There you go. We go on to Lucky Man, which kind of there's something about the sentiment that feels like it's quite a seamless movement from what you've just been talking about. Yeah, so so it was funny. So I so the band kind of um, we did carry on for a, a year after I went to uni. So I went to uni in Leicester, uh, September '98. So we sort of played a, around Oxford and Reading and London. Um, you know, we always had that hope we would make it, but we just didn't really have the um, we couldn't be bothered really we didn't put in the effort we couldn't keep being bothering trying to get out our same mates to watch us play again and again um and so yeah so we all kind of went off to uni we carried on for one more year um but then sort of um called it a day but um yeah so the reason i've chose lucky man it's not my favorite verb song at all i'd say my favorite verb song is um either sonnet or weeping willow or space and time they're the ones that really speak to me but lucky man the reason that's i've picked that was so i've arrived at my first day at university i'm in this horrible kind of campus out you know well outside of leicester uh, city centre I was in like a, a halls of re- I was in like a, a hall on the ground floor with like plastic sheeting on the bed and bars <laughs> on the windows and it was r- a real rough old um, campus that was about to get demolished basically and now it's not like these fancy sort of flats that students have now there was like shared bathroom <laughs> on a floor of 14 really mm. rough 
And as my folks sort of dropped me off, you know, I'd never seen my mum cry before, but she was Aww. actually in tears. And she was like, you can come home, James, I don't mind. Because <laughs> it was awful. Aww. It was a horrible little hovel of a room. And I said, like, no, no, it's fine. I'll be fine. I'll be fine. Go on, just go, go. I'll be all right. <laughs> and so I sort of stuck Be Here Now on kind of for courage and uh, sort of getting out my CDs and getting out all my stuff. And then I was thinking like, right, I'm going to have to get the courage to sort of, you know, have a wander out of my room and go and see what's going on and try and meet people. But, you know, everyone's sort of arriving with their parents and that hustle and bustle of like the first day and and i heard uh acoustic guitar coming through the window uh, coming through the the wall and it was like someone very badly playing the course the lucky man and i was like oh lucky that's the verb so i so i grabbed my guitar you know and sort of you know deep breath and went and like went to the room next door and there was like four or five people sort of sitting around chatting and one guy was playing the guitar and so I went in like, oh, all right, guys, you know, do you like Verve? Do you like Oasis? And then sort of, and that was how we kind of bonded on that first day, was wow. playing, um, was playing the Verve and Oasis um, songs, and uh, yeah, and then I had ended up having a really, really good, fun first day. You know, went to the um, the union, had like drinks and met everyone, and and um, and then I ended up meeting then later that night. The guy then turned up late you know we were saying oh there's one person left on our on our floor we haven't met yet i wonder who he is and then we're all back from the pub and this guy turns up with more cds than i've ever seen before a bunch of guitars and it's like who is this guy and he was my friend who went to be my friend simon who was in a um who was in a beatles tribute band and oh. like a, and, a, and a, another band as well and so so this guy suddenly arrives i'm like whoa this guy's super cool you know he's really into stuff so yeah so it was a crazy first day that all goes back to um lucky man so lucky man will always you know mean a lot to me and are you all still lifelong friends now uh from that so so basically after that first year i mean i became sort of uh really good friends with simon um, the rest of the people on the floor, kind of not so much really. I mean, there's, there's a few I'm still friends with on Facebook. I might have the odd message here and there. Mm-hmm. Um, when I went into my second year, then you sort of have to choose to, you know, to get a um, a place, you know, go into a house, shared house. And I went into a shared house with this guy Simon, this other guy Charlie, and then uh, a couple of like girls that that we were friends with as well. So, and then we were out at like a, an Ian Brown uh, night. It was actually the launch to. Um, an Ian Brown single, Dolphins or Monkeys, I think. And then there was another guy who's seen that we were here with this Ian Brown sort of swag. Mm. You know, oh, where'd you get that guy? So, you know, he, a guy who'd come on his own, who always went to the same same uh, uni as us. And that was this guy, Rich. And so we did end up becoming, like, really close, us four. Um, and we like ended up doing the radio station together and all that sort of thing. So us, we were a gang of, a proper little gang of four, uh, Rich, Simon, Charlie and me. And uh, yeah, that was my sort of gang throughout the rest of uni, really. That's so nice that you found like a group of people that you just kind of click with because it's quite in, it's one of those hit and miss situations at uni. I think like if you get the wrong crowd or just a crowd that doesn't get you, it can really make or break your experience of university. Um, yeah. But then I guess that time that you went to university is the tail end of Britpop, so I I am I guess most people would still have been sort of in that mindset still yeah and and so we basically lived at a place anyone from Leicester will know there's a place called the fan club and um yeah and it's like a classic sort of indie indie student sort of place and uh yeah it's just it's like horrible sticky floors and you know a classic you know brilliant Mm. lovely little studenty indie venue 
and we basically lived there. So there was like, you know, Tuesday was an uh, indie night, Wednesday was 60s night, uh, mm. Thursday there was a club down the road called Oxygen, that was like an indie but heavier rock night that one of our friends, uh, female friends, was really liked. And then the Friday night, I think, was like indie but it was more 80s, and the Saturday night was like indie night again. So, <laughs> so it was basically like, you know, we were there at least three times a week every week um, we lived in there and it was brilliant you know and it was all playing like you know I'm the Resurrection and mm-hmm. but then Beastie Boys and Nirvana and all just like all that that great music and Oasis obviously and the Mannix and uh, yeah so we just basically lived in the Van Club and I don't know if it's next on the list but but um, Bert's Apple Crumble by the Quick is that then yeah. the next one yeah that's the yeah. Next one. so yeah so as having been into um, 60s sort of music as a, a kid, like you know, as I talked about, like Michael Jackson and, and Blues Brothers soundtrack and things like that, um, it was meeting Simon, and Simon was like a proper mod, and he was like, no, no, you've got to really, um, you know, dig into it more, like all this great Northern Soul stuff that I hadn't really got into. I'd heard about from Northern Soul and, and sort of things, but I'd never really got into it. And so it was really then becoming friends with Simon. I really sort of got into the mod side of it and sort of started to dress a little bit less indie, a bit more mod. You know, sort of still wear style of my hair. We nicked a pair of bowling shoes, you know, from the bowling alley. Um, you know, that sort of thing. So I probably got into 60s music at that point. Got quite a few Northern Soul uh, compilations and I really sort of dug into Northern Soul. And the reason I picked Burt's Apple Crumble is we were only... Um, we are on the radio, so so my friend Charlie, he's now actually a presenter on um, BBC Newsroom South East, the one down in sort of Tunbridge Wells sort of area. Yeah, I mean, he really stuck with it, um, and uh, yeah, and it did really, really well. He's actually married to uh, a woman called Nazanin uh, Gaffar, and Nazanin Rose, who does the uh, weather on Sky News. So, um, so yeah, but yeah, so Charlie was on the radio, because um, he'd done loads of stuff on, on radio at home and then got on the radio at uh, the, the... I went to De Montfort in Leicester, so it's called Demon FM. And I got on the radio as well. The four of us basically had our own sort of morning show, like 10 to 12. And, um, and it was brilliant. I absolutely loved it. You know, that was you know, some of the best times of my life, doing the radio shows with those guys. And... Um, and we would always bring our own choices in of music. We'd always, like, in the morning, like, have to drag ourselves out of bed and everyone would grab a stack of CDs and you'd be kind of, like, arguing for what song you wanted to play. And I would always... Because Burt's Apple Crumble by The Quick is a really brilliant little mod, kind of two-minute instrumental, funky little piece of music. It's in, It's been used on adverts and stuff quite a lot in the last few years. Um, and I would always argue for Burt's... Oh, God, let's stick on Burt's Apple Crumble by The Quick. And I'd always get, like... Nah. Someone else would then say, "Oh, what about uh, Ever Fallen in Love by the Boscocks?" Yeah, let's stick that on. You'd be like, "Oh," so I'd always fight for it. But um, anyway, I did end up uh, getting it played a few times. But interestingly, at uni, I also at, at the radio station, as well as doing that show, I did a uh, a documentary series, like four part documentary. Uh, called Titan Nineties, <laughs> and so this was in like it's either ninety nine or two thousand. I can't remember, but yeah, I basically did a, a an hour show um, for you know four episodes once a week. You know, first episode ninety to ninety two, second episode mm-hmm. ninety three to ninety five, or, or whatever, going through and telling the history of the nineties music um, with little clips interspersed of interviews and clips of films and and things like that. So. 
yeah, well, that, that sounds was... familiar. <laughs> exactly, exactly, it's exactly. It was basically, you know, and I love doing that. And it actually won. Like we had an award oh, ceremony cool. for the for the thing, and it won like the best um, best documentary uh, or best like non music show at the award ceremony as well, which was like really really cool. I loved it, and so um, yeah, I've still got it on cassette, and I'll have to dig Can it out be- and digitize it. Can people still hear it? That would be great no, to no, hear no, that. No. Oh, it, it's, it's physically on cassette in my loft. Okay. I'd have to digitise it. But it was good. I, I, I was proud of it. It was well written and yeah. uh, basically told the same story. So, you know, I was into 90s nostalgia while it was still <laughs> the 90s. Pro, it was cool, like everyone is now. Well, you've called it tied to the 90s. So were, were you a Travis fan at that point? Yeah, well, I just, I mean, I did really like Travis. I used, um, I used the, you know, tied to 90s goes like, dun, 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 dun. And what I did is I sort of went, um, I had like, a, we would play adverts on the station for other, you know, you go in and record a little advert for your own show. And so I recorded, I, it sort of goes back to my quizzing thing as well, but I went like, okay, pop quiz. Which nineties band did this or something? And then it would play the dun da da dun da da dun da da dun and then I'd give the answer and I'd go like if you thought that was interesting, check out Tide to the Nineties, Wednesday at six o'clock or something. And uh yeah, so no, that was that was uh the the quiz element coming in as well. Oh, that's cool. Um did you did you get lots of call ins and people writing letters and stuff like that? No, well, that was more... I mean, we always loved getting calls when we did our sort of normal, like, morning show sort of thing. We would desperately try and get people to phone in just for the, the you know, just for the banter of it. That show was more of a... It was more of a documentary, but we did it live. So, you know, so I would... Um, sign, thankfully, my friend Simon was, like, a really good technical kind of producer sort of board. So you know i would have the show laid out and i would say like put this in now put this in now and so it was just like a documentary but we had to do it kind of live um but no it was really good fun <laughs> so i'm just having a, a technical issue here just re-plugging my laptop in okay Oh, that's really cool. I, I just wanted to ask you a few questions just when you mentioned Bert's Apple Crumble and you becoming a mod and getting into a Northern Soul. Um, were you a Northern Soul dancer? <laughs> ah, not really. I, I can do a little bit. Um, yeah, I can do a little bit. I would do like a flicky foot thing, you know, but um, but no, I, 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 I don't go into all the sort of the, the more acrobatic stuff. Um, I just like to have a bit of a boogie, really. Um, but it's a boogie with, like, <laughs> yeah, a little bit sort of flicky. Like, you know, I think my um, people say, oh, oh, James doing that flicky foot thing again. You know, so it's, <laughs> it's just a little bit. It looks like a normal sort of indie stomp, but with a bit of a flick. <laughs> so that's what I, I call it. But I went to um, Retrofest a, a year or so ago, and there was a Northern Soul-like dance lesson there, and it was actually oh, really cool. good fun. Because I'm not a good dancer in terms of, you know, actually having rhythm and things like going to like keep fit class or whatever. I'd be a complete mess. But I could get it just because I've, you know, I could kind of get the rhythm and I know the music. So I could I could get the basic moves. And there's one point when a couple of these women came over to me and said, excuse me, how did you do that spin kick? clap thing and I was like so proud I was like yes yeah, so the one thing I can do is a you know a little spin flick kick you know that's that sort of uh, yeah I have got that a little bit but no I'm, I'm no um, I'm not a proper modern soul dancer <laughs> so we've now got a mix of Maud, Liam, Jarvis, Rick, Richie Manick, 
Yes. Soul. Uh, <laughs> did you did you actually? Because uh, I'm just thinking about those two films that came out a few years ago. Uh, one was Northern Soul. The other was Bengali. Did you did yes. you watch both of those? Yeah, yeah, I love them. I love them yeah. both. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Svengali's um, directed and starred Johnny Owen, who's brilliant, yeah. you know, who I don't know, but I know he's, he's on, he was on this thing called The Modcast, which was great, and, you know, Martin Freeman was in that. Northern yeah. Soul was really good as well, you know. I think it's just such an interesting kind of period of time, really, that 70s, um, you know, that is, is a strange and difficult time in this country, and just this this sort of cult, almost, of these people going and dancing all night. I absolutely love it. Yeah, it's such an interesting kind of subculture. Uh, the fashion looks rubbish, you know, when you look back at it now, um, with the vests and the big baggy <laughs> trousers and stuff. I don't like the fashion. Yeah, I much prefer the sort of the, the 60s style fashion. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's definitely a um, yeah, really, really important scene. Yeah, yeah. I think because isn't um, Bert's Apple Crumble is like the opening to Svengali, isn't it? Like as, as the or, or it's on the trailer. That's like a crumble. It is played in the background. Is it? It probably yeah. is. Actually, I can't. I don't remember that. But yeah, that would probably make sense. Yeah, it's it's a perfect tune for a trailer. It's been used on all kinds of stuff now. Advert, BBC ad, uh, you know, BBC TV program adverts and things like that. It's just such a great little piece of music. Yeah, I'm surprised not more people have seen that film because it's got Alan McGee in it. It's got uh, Martin mm. Freeman. Uh, it's, it's great I love that <laughs> mm, it's brilliant it didn't get like a big push and a big release I think it's only really if you were aware of you know um, I think Johnny Owen it was great he starred you know he was he played himself you know he played himself basically but it's great he, he was the main star of it because he wrote the thing but you know I think if it had been a Martin Freeman in the main role rather than just playing like the cool mod guy but, yeah, it was a very very shoestring budget you know it's a, a tiny little film and he was just very lucky because he's you know his Vicky McClure is his partner and Martin Freeman's a good mate so you know they were able to get it made um, yeah McGee I forgot McGee's in it yeah I should talk to him about that but yeah. anyway yeah no, it's a great film you should check it out you know fun little side fact when they were doing when they were doing the uh, pilot for that before they started filming they filmed some episodes in the Boogaloo and um, oh, yeah. I was in the background <laughs> really oh well, yeah. the web series that came the before the film yeah Goes up to the journalist in the in the car and says, uh, starts talking about Paul Morley and the journalist tells him to fuck off. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm in the background. <laughs> oh, brilliant! That's fantastic. It's your claim yeah. to fame. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I thought that was a fun side. <laughs> cool. So um, I know we've kind of moved on a lot from Lucky Man by the Verb, but I realised that I didn't actually ask you whether beyond the association with your friends like did you were you a fair fan and did did that song mean something to you like lyrically as well not really i mean verve i didn't get into straight away i was kind of um you know still riding the be here now train and a lot of people really got into the verve and i was kind of a bit resistant to them i bought bittersweet symphony i bought drugs don't work on single and i only bought urban hymns a few months later and i did absolutely love it you know um uh, I, the, the first two albums I can take or leave to be honest I think History's great I think On Your Own is great except for that bit where he goes 
Love, gotta get real hold inside. <laughs> Which I think is really off-putting. And, um, yeah, so I, that just, I'm like, oh, come on, Richard. You could have just sung it down an octave. It would have been a million times better. But um, that's what, like, we're talking about Morris. That's one of those quirky things. If the singing annoys me, it annoys me. But, mm. um, yeah, but no, so I did, I did really love that album and, and really got into it afterwards. Um, but, yeah, I mean, lyrically not, it didn't kind of blow me away. I think mm. Sonnet is special. I think there's something really special about Sonnet. I remember... Remember being on holiday and just listening to that kind of on repeat. Um, there's something magic about it. I think it's the uh, Nick's guitar playing on it as well is so mm. special. I think Richard's stuff has been really good since. I really like the first Richard Ashcroft album especially. Um, but yeah, there's, without Nick's guitar playing, it's it's kind of misses something. Mm-hmm. I know like a lot of people often like talk about um, the end of brick hot hit. But I, I kind of associate it with the verb, because <laughs> uh, yeah. especially with um, the drugs don't work, the sentiment, it feels as if, like, everyone's just on a come down, or, you know, mm. like, it, something definitely was different at that point. Yeah, I agree. You had, like, Death of a Party by Blur as well. I mean, you got that whole album, but Death of a Party by Blur, and then the, the Pulp This Is Hardcore album is the same thing as well. I think those two really sum up the end of Britpop for me you know when they're like you know when you've got uh, you know and then a lot of people split up and and you know it wasn't it just wasn't the same and then you've got like Embrace's album I think people sort of forget Embrace how yeah. massive they were I mean I'm thinking like summer of 98 um uh in the pub like you know watching the World Cup 98 and things it was the big albums were Embrace, The Verve and uh Be Here Now Still so that you know, they were massive and then and then after that you get like Travis the man who and you get like Coldplay start to come through mm. um so it starts to get a bit more kind of acoustic-y after that point you don't get the glam and glitz of the Britpop kind of fun stuff as you as you did in the previous couple of years the stereophonics and um yeah yeah Yeah. well we now got to polyphonics (laughs) yeah so we kind of fast forward pretty much through the last uh, (laughs) the last sort of the the, you know leaving uni that was kind of you know 17 years ago and we're going to sort of fast forward through that because i think really those were the periods where I was the most into music and the music meant the most to me. Um, so I kind of skip forward now to sort of Polyphonic Spree, second album coming out. I mean, there's a few things sort of that were really big and special to me, like, um, you know, Super Furry Animals, we haven't talked about who I love, especially the Rings Around the World album that came out in 2001. That means that sort of really speaks to me about, you know, leaving uni, um, you know, getting my first place like you know get my first job and things like that but the music wasn't a huge part of that for me uh, it was just bands I really liked like the streets the streets first album is I think 2002 I absolutely loved that you know it's so quick you know once again the lyrics are so witty and stuff but the, the first thing I think that, that the reason I sort of went polyphonic spree is that sort of the second polyphonic spree album in 2004 I distinctly remember putting that on because um, I'd, I'd liked the first album but I thought it was I mean, it's called The Beginning Stages and it feels like a lot of the tracks are demos it doesn't feel like they're really fully realised you've got like Soldier Girl um, and a couple of others that are like quite fully realised but then the rest of the album is quite sketchy whereas then when you get to the second album uh, which is called Together We're Heavy it's the whole thing is just this 
rainbow of just joyous magic and um, you know and the way I kind of I remember hearing it for the first time I had a long car drive and I put the CD in and I almost had to pull the car over it was just blew my mind that these like because it's because I love the Beatles so much and as I said Abbey Road the their second half Abbey Road is pretty much my favorite music of all time and the Polyphonic Spree like the second album especially takes that Abbey Road medley and just takes it stratospheric so there's orchestras there's choirs there's these all the songs are just so full of passion and joy and you know it's about the the you know worshiping the sun and in life and light and it's just so um, emotional and so joyous is the only word I can keep coming back to and it just blows my mind every time I listen to it um, and I always go back to it you know it's one of the most the, it's probably one of the most albums albums I've listened to the most because I just can't you know if you ever need like just a burst of sunshine that mm. is the album to do it it's absolutely amazing and why they didn't take over the world uh, I don't understand <laughs> Well, I, I don't listen to music that much. This is like the reason we kind of, sort of fast forward through the, um, the the next sort of seventeen years of my life because um, I'm ashamed to say almost I don't listen to music that much anymore. I listen to when, especially when podcasts came in, that was it. I was into mm-hmm. podcasts, and so um, so what I tend to listen to is the you know like Radio Four because I'm a I want to be smart ass. And podcasts because I want to hear people talking about the stuff I love, and I engage with that. And that that to me is like, you know, is is what I would always choose to listen to now. And it's very rare for me to put music on. Mm. And when I and so Polyphonic Spree is just a classic example of you know I'm sort of a bit sick of listening to you know a podcast or the radio or whatever, and I just think right, let's just have Polyphonic Spree, and it's just comforting. You know, it's it's a it's a, a warm blanket of a record, you know, or it's a, you know, a, a glass of fizzy pop or whatever analogy you want to do. It's it's just the best. It's the best, most fun thing you can do. You know, listen to music. I just love it so much. Mm. Um, and um, yeah, yeah. So it's not. I'm not like a person that feels down and feels the need to put music on. You know, it's not really mm. how I am. Um, if ever if like works in my head or something like that, then I'll probably put on a podcast and just escape into that world, you know, like, in, and whether it be talking about movies or TV or, or, or news or something, or, so then that will be where I'll go to, to sort of, you know, just um, be distracted and have something else to think about rather than music, to be honest. Mm, yeah, I think that's kind of really interesting to hear, like, different people's, like, ideas on what they do, you know, what what like because everyone's different and uh 
I guess it's nice to kind of get that kind of overview of the different things people do in different moments. I and mean, it's not always about a song, but yes, people talking or a book or mm. yeah. There's like a theme emerging in what you're <laughs> what you're saying because you said uh, you, during the polyphonic spree stage you bought a band robe and you. <laughs> I wanted um, to run off with the band. Yeah, absolutely. So. It's, <laughs> So I went to see them twice on that tour, and the first time I absolutely loved it. So, so people that don't know, the Polyphonic Spree is like twenty-five members, and so yes. so you've got ma- the main guy is Tim De. I don't even know it's pronounced Tim De Lauter or Tim De Laughter. He's like the band leader almost, and then you've got this full band. So on the first album, they all wore white robes, and uh, and the second album, they all wore multicolored robes, and so uh, and then they've gone on. I haven't kind of followed their career as as much in the last few years. Um, and so we turned up for the first uh, gig and both bought robes. And, um, you know, and so when I came to the second gig, I wore the robe and I, it's just the most fun. You know, I would have, you know, I would have happily, as this this before children, I would have happily, if they'd said, come on, quit your job, come and jump <laughs> on the bus, you can play the tambourine, I would have done it. You know, I, I that would have been the lifestyle. Like Ken Casey, you know, in the 60s, like, you know, get on the bus. Um, I would have done it because that was just looks like the most fun ever. And go back to Pulp, you know, Jarvis got on stage with them before and things like that is just like in the background, you know, he's, he's oh. on their live DVD. You know, it's just the best, the best <laughs> fun ever when you go to their gigs. Do you still have that robe? Yes, I, I wore it. I went to a fancy dress party as either like a hippie or as Jesus, maybe. And I wore that robe as well. So it's it's a good one to keep in the wardrobe. Does it come with even one of those ropey belt things, like a monk? I'm kind <laughs> no. of imagining a monk. <laughs> yeah, no, I know what you mean. No, no, it's just it's just a it's a nice robe. It's got polyphonic spree logo. I like it. I might dig it out. I might wear it to work tomorrow. Yeah, it'd be good in the heat, actually. Mm, yes. <laughs> you said that it sums up the period post uni, trying to find meaning in what you're doing. So I wondered what you meant by that. Did I say that? That sounds a bit wanky for me. Um, <laughs> no, I don't know. I think it's like, I don't know about finding meaning. I think that like, um, yeah, sort of, you know, doing something different, sort of finding yourself doing a job. I kind of having sort of done media at uni and really enjoyed the radio stuff and all that sort of side of it. I kind of just got like a regular job in finance. And I've just worked in finance basically ever since. And and it's fine. I enjoy what I do. And um, I don't feel the need to, you know, no, I must go off and do this other thing. I'm more than happy. I really enjoy my job. I get on with it. I do it. And then I can do stuff like the Oasis podcast or other things that I really enjoy outside of that so I don't feel that need and and I think it was just that bombing around in a car like going to different meetings and stuff and just gives you that space to listen to that music and and yeah Polyphon yeah. Spree being the, the one of the go-tos all the time. So this is the moment where maybe I might sound quite wanky and I don't mean to <laughs> but I think <laughs> well, you're allowed. <laughs> I'm allowed. <laughs> but I think that what you've just said is really important to what I've noticed in male identity because I really see so often how there is this conflict or schism or however you want to call it a life of a standard job like a nine-to-five job a family a stable life and then this other side that it, like a creative 
outlet mm. and time and time again I see obviously through my job and through talking to male friends and whatever that very often there's a conflict between the two and like an itch mm. that people want to scratch around or oh, I never made it in my band or I wish that I was freer or something like that so when you're talking I want to zoom in on it a bit because you said that you actually are happy with the balance and you do have it you have, you've got both sides in your life and you're quite content which I think is quite important for people to hear yeah yeah well I think that what um you know I think when we talked about my dad earlier as well I think that that's always been important to me like you work you do your job you go and do your job so even if like you know so I started out I sort of did a couple of TV station placements and things like that and well, after I left uni that was what I wanted to do but I sort of realized very quickly ah hold on a minute this is a joke like they are just getting people to work for free it's just free labor slave labor and I wasn't willing to do that and you know and and I wanted to work and earn and I think that sort of probably instilled into me from my dad like you know no you have to go and work and earn like you can't you can't not work and so I wouldn't like saying about the band like we wouldn't I wouldn't have lived in a squat and just practiced with the band for two years and if people want to do that and if they are that passionate that that's what it means to them brilliant i i applaud them for having that love and passion for it people that kind of up sticks and go and you know risk everything to go and be an actor or something like that absolutely brilliant i i love and respect that i never had enough desire to overcome my like desire to work be seen as a person that works and and that that was the key thing for me so yeah if given the choice like i said given the record deal i would have taken it given the um anything else that came along absolutely if i could have done something in radio or tv or something like that brilliant yeah absolutely i would have taken the job but if someone said to me oh yeah you look in this future you know you will get it but you're gonna have to work for free for like four years and then when you get it you know jobs in the media are pretty crap unless you're like a very very top person it's a lot of fixed-term contracts and, you know, you, you have low pay and working for free. And I just wasn't willing to do that, really. So, mm. you know, so I'd much rather do a day job, be very, very happy doing it, earn a decent amount of money at, at like, you know, with, with guarantees, not like, where's the next contract going to come from? And then, yeah, but then I think, like, in, you know, I don't know if we go on to the mastermind thing next, but I think that it was like, there was always that thing of, mm, yeah, I'd like to do something else, though. So, you know, there is an itch to scratch. And so, so yeah, so then, like, going the Mastermind was one of those in 2008, which was, like, you know, a year or so after my first uh, child was born. And then, um, you know, and then also then obviously doing this podcast as well. It's like, I still wanted to do something, you know, something extra to scratch that itch. And, uh, yeah, so there's definitely something in that. So I went on Mastermind in 2008. It was shown in 2009. And really, it's one of those things where a friend of mine from uni had gone on The Weakest Link and I saw it come up on Facebook. And I thought, what? Like, he's gone on The Weakest Link. I'm far better at quizzing than he is. I should go on The Bloody Weakest Link. Anyway, so I looked to go on The Weakest Link, but then the actual application process was really long-winded and I couldn't be bothered. And so I was like, right, no, forget that. What else could I do? And Mastermind was on the BBC website and I thought well you know the stuff I know about I really know about I'm a, a proper geek about so I thought well great I'll apply to do that mm-hmm. and um yeah and so I applied and you have to apply online you have to you know list what subjects you'd be willing to do and I think I put Britpop or Billy Bragg British cinema in the 1960s so it's all basically 60s 90s pop 
pop culture stuff, really. And then, or Billy Bragg's 80s, but there you go. And then, uh, yeah, and I, I got on. Basically, I got on. And yeah, and so um, in the first round, I did the mod. And, and if anyone wants, I'll, I'll just skim through this because if anyone wants to listen to it, I have covered it on my podcast before. I think it might be a Patreon only, actually, so you can pay money and listen to that. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, the first round, I did the mod movement in Britain. And I did really well. I won. I won on the first round of Mastermind, which was amazing. And our final contender, please. Chosen subject. The mod movement in Britain. The mods in two minutes, starting now. Which of the two makes of motor scooter, favoured by the mods, has a name meaning wasp in Italian? Vespa. Correct. Which Friday night television pop music show, whose slogan was The Weekend Starts Here, was a showcase for the latest music and fashion? Ready, steady, go. Yes, at Easter 1964, which East Coast Resort became the scene of the first confrontation between the police and mods and rockers Clacton. when 97 arrests were made. Clacton. Yes, I'm the Face was on the A side of the only single released by The Who in their incarnation as the high numbers. What was on the B side? Zoot Suit. Yes, in March 64... And also on Mastermind that day, pre the chase fame, Paul Sinner, who's the one of the guys on the chase, um, mm. this sort of um, ITV quiz show. So I beat him and I went through to the second round. So second round, I then did um, Billy Bragg and so once I'd won and I got through to the second round I emailed like office at braggcentral.com like the main Billy Bragg email address and I said oh, can you please let Billy know I'm going to be doing Billy Bragg on, on this second round of Mastermind and literally a couple of minutes later I got an email back hi James Billy here uh, you know congratulations let me know if I can be of any help oh amazing <laughs> and I was like what you know and, and Billy Bragg is my hero you know, I mean, as much as I love Liam and Noel, you know, I also have a lot of issues with them. They're not perfect people. Mm. Billy Bragg is pretty much a perfect person. You know, he's a great <laughs> human being, as well as a great songwriter, as well as, you know, a great campaigner and for all these brilliant causes. So that was just amazing for me. I met him, I went to a performance he did, you know, and got to meet him as well, which was fantastic. And um, but but for me, Billy was up and down listening to you know I think I mentioned like my brother um, you know I used to hear it come up my brother's bedroom but I never really dug into it and it was sort of catching a bit of him on Glastonbury doing Milkman of Human Kindness on TV and I was just like this is amazing this guy's such an incredible songwriter and I sort of dug through and nicked all my brother's old cassette tapes of Billy Bragg and when I was at university I didn't have a CD player in my car and a tape player so it was basically I was quite limited because most of my music was on CD so I hammered the Holy Bible by the Manics and all of Billy Bragg's stuff basically was my main thing driving up and down to uni like a hundred miles to Leicester up and down and um so yeah, I just that to me going up and down is just those albums, and I love him. I, I just think his music is so you know it, it's so powerful. It speaks to me like the love songs speak to me, the the, um, the political songs speak to me. You know, and and sort of finding myself as a political person, I deliberately don't talk about anything poli politics wise on the podcast, mm. but I am kind of a you know classic kind of liberal lefty is sort of where I pitch myself. You know, and he sings about in Upfield, he sings I've got a socialism of the heart. And that's what his music's all about. It's about compassion for your fellow man. It's not necessarily about, you know, there is, you know, there is power in a union and things like that. You know, he does sing that, but it's about compassion. 
and it's about kindness and that's what you know means a lot to me and Billy Bragg is just you know is, is a, a, a hero of mine and then it does come across in the way you are I think actually because that uh, compassion and kindness I think in amongst all the the inviting of the Oasis podcast I think that and <laughs> um, I think deep down when you when you're like listening back to of the episodes that you recorded the thing that I notice is is um, how much loveliness there is actually <laughs> um, yeah well I try you know you try to make the world a better place or whatever you know don't want to come across Michael Jackson about it but you know just there's no need to be uh, nasty about things like and especially the online world especially the Oasis world it gets very backbitey and you know whether you're a Noel or Liam person they can like just slay each other relentlessly and obviously the brothers you know encourage it as well because it's good for sales so um you know and, and i just i just find the whole thing mind-numbingly boring it's just crushingly boring it's sad and horrible and i can't be asked with it i'd much rather you know hear someone tell me about why they love oasis so much or why they love uh, another you know another band so much than oh Noel's an arsehole because of this or liam is an arsehole because of this or you know Liam's pathetic, he wants to get the band back together, or Noel wants to get the band back together. You know, why doesn't Noel get the band back together? Oh, it's so boring. You know, it's so boring. And there's a there's just an undercurrent of nastiness about so much of it, and I'm just not interested in it at all. I just generally don't engage. Um, but, uh, yeah, occasionally, I'll, occasionally I engage a little bit, but, you know, just generally I think that the best thing is just to ignore people. Um, yeah. And, yeah, and, and just encourage, you know, positivity where I can, really. But, yeah. And then you have, you have the um, great people like uh, Brandon and Adrian on the boys, like hearing them speak, like you can tell they're really good people as well. And Cynthia, and I, I think that's what, what I notice is like for all of this argument, I think because you, you pick out the compassion side of things, um, mm. you end up hearing nice stories from nice people <laughs> yeah well if people you know i get messages all the time saying like you know oh i, I should come on the podcast I would da, 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 da. and what i always say is well look okay engage you know engage yeah mm-hmm. i bloody say it at the end of every episode stay in touch stay engaged <laughs> right engage then come on like you know come on twitter or facebook instagram whatever message me I, I reply to all my messages and if I, I don't reply I'm really sorry message me again and I'll, I'll, I'll apologize unless it's some nastiness like you know some you know snidiness about you know oh why is Noel bothering with this scissors player or whatever I'm not going to engage on that you know I'm just <laughs> not interested in in that level of snide whereas the people that come on have got like an interesting story to tell or engage in a happy and positive way and help me out if they send me reviews and things like that then I'm much more likely to then, when it's time to do like a, well, if they want to do a full, you know, I get to know them, you know, and that's how it sort of works. So so most of the people that you've heard, whether it's, you know, Brandon and Adrian or yourself, obviously, and Dan Best and uh, Ryan Harvey and, and Mike D'Souza, all these people that have done great stuff for me and have become like a real community of Oasis fans, mm-hmm. it's because they've engaged first and we've b- built up a bit of a relationship and then we can, you know, do stuff. So, so yeah, no, it's a really nice community of people. We've, there's two more we've missed out. There's Nick Coke, Grow, 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 and there's okay. Portals. Oh, okay. Portals, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So so just to cover this off, the Nick Cope is a kid's thing because, you know, I, I've, got, I've got three young children. Um, Nick Cope was the lead singer in the Candy Skins, uh, who were one of my favourite pop bands. They were from Oxford as well. So they always meant a lot because we 
sort of saw the Candy Skins as one of us, as a struggling Oxford band that were trying to make it through and they just didn't. And if anyone can dig out the documentary, anyone can play guitar, which is a brilliant documentary about the Oxford music scene. Um, they talk a lot about the Candy Skins. They were massive to us in Oxford and they didn't quite make it. They had a couple of like, you know, top 40 hits like in the lower echelons and they just didn't quite make it. And uh, Nick Cope uh, is a brilliant, brilliant songwriter. And years later, I didn't hear, you know, much of them for years. And then I found out that like Nick Cope now does children's songs. And so when you've got young kids, you want to kill yourself constantly having to listen to the <laughs> crap music, you know. But um, I, I feel really sorry for people who have got you know, babies now. It's the baby shark and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. Jesus. <laughs> but what Nick Cope does is he keeps his brilliant Candy Skins level songwriting, but he writes kids' songs with it. So they're simple melodies, but they've got that same passion and beauty as you know as candy skin songs and actually they're more beautiful because they're sort of more more melodic and more simple and so you know a track like grow 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 is is you know that can make me cry you know just as a as a beautiful little song it's a bloody kids song you know but it's it's um it's got that songwriting skill underneath you know the, the changes and the the arrangement and the production and Nick's voice is brilliant so yeah anyone that's got kids out there like you know Nick Hope's albums are absolutely essential and will probably save your life and save you from going mad listening to Wheels on the Bus <laughs> and we are like the seeds are and the birds and the bees in the trees are Oh, that's brilliant. And then and you've got Portals, Alan Yeah, so, so Portals by Alan Silvestri, this is basically from the latest uh, Avengers film soundtrack. And if you've seen the latest Avengers film, um, there's a bit, there's a big climax where all the heroes come together. And the reason I wanted to talk about this is really, as I've said, you know, music hasn't been that big to me in the last few years. Um, the, the reason I got into podcasting was because my friends did a podcast, you know, they they weren't my friends originally, they were just podcasters that did a, a show called The Movie Multiverse. I love um, connected universe stuff. I just love that in TV and in films when they have things that are connected and ties. It, it's, it's just something that I've always really enjoyed. Even going back to like Eddie Murphy films, when a character from an Eddie Murphy you know, would appear in another film, you go, oh, they're linked, they're in the same universe. And I've always loved that. And... Um, and I was never a big comic reader growing up. I liked, you know, as all kids do, I liked, you know, the animated Spider-Man TV show and stuff like that. But I wasn't really big into comics. And it's like later on, I've really got, you know, into movies and and and, um, and TV and stuff later. And the big thing for me, I absolutely love the the Marvel Cinematic Universe. These films that have just built up over like eleven years now that have been so clever with this interconnected universe of characters. It's like a TV show. And for me, that's like my soap opera. My favourite soap operas are the ongoings of the Liam and, Liam and Noel and what's <laughs> happening in the Marvel films. And that to me is just, is great. And, and as well, the music, um, especially the scores that Alan Silvestri has done, 
Um, and I love John Williams, you know, like Superman um, is probably my favourite piece of music, like, yeah, piece of classical music. I'll put it against Vaughan Williams or Beethoven or anything like that. Like, you know, I absolutely love the Superman theme. Um, and what Alan Silvestri's done, you know, uh, so, so really the point is, I have stepped away from music a hell of a lot in the last few years. Um, and it's really movie scores have become one of my go-to things to listen to. Um, uh, yeah, and, and it's partly because, you know, I, I love these films so much and, and they, you know, they've become such a big part of my life. So if I wasn't doing an Oasis podcast, it would probably be a movies podcast, you know, and because um, I, I, I do love them so much. Uh, yeah, and, and Portals is just an incredible piece of music. Um, yes, so there you go. That's Portals for you. Uh, and that's where the movies things comes in. Which um, superhero would you be in Spencer? Wow, that's a good question. Um, well, like my favourite, you know, if you'd said a few years ago, it's the brilliant thing that Marvel did, is they resurrected a bunch of tired, boring, old heroes that no one really cared about. You know, they had the B squad of heroes. They'd sold off the rights to Spider-Man and they'd sold off the rights to the X-Men. They didn't have much left. And this genius producer, Kevin Feige, put together a deal to say, right, no, we might have what other people deem to be B-class heroes, but we're going to make them A-class. No one knew who Iron Man was. Captain America was a joke. The Hulk was, what, the 70s TV show? You know, the Lou Ferrigno painted green. You know, and Thor. Who's Thor? What? The Norse god. This doesn't... These aren't... stuff. This is going to fail. But they absolutely nailed it and they were absolutely brilliant. And Captain America, from being like this cheesy kind of, you know, Captain America thing, is now like an icon. You know, and, and not just an icon of the, you know, of pro-America BS, but a counter-cultural icon. Because they have made Captain America like... You know, he will go against the state if, you know, or the prevailing opinion. He will fight for what he thinks is right. And I think that's absolutely brilliant. You know, and so so my favourite hero is Chris Evans' portrayal of Captain America in those uh, in those films. Yeah, and I think that the the one the one scene that stands out that sort of is the most powerful in any of this, any of these intergalactic space battles with talking raccoons and trees and, you know, all of this madness that they've done. The greatest moment in all of these films is, like, 22 films, I think it is. You see Captain America when he's just skinny little Steve before he's been given the special serum, and he's doing training, and there's a bit where they throw a grenade on the ground, and he jumps on top of it to save everyone. That is just an incredible moment. It was, like, a test, you know what I mean? But that moment when he jumps on the grenade, you're like, yes... That's that's what it's about. That means everything. That self-sacrifice that he shows. So, you know, Captain America, there you go. Look at that. He's making me cry. I am looking for qualities beyond the physical. Do you know how long it took to set up this project? All the groveling I had to do in front of Senator What's-His-Name's committees? Yes, I know. I am well aware of your efforts. Then throw me a bone. Hodge passed every test we gave him. He's big, he's fast, he obeys orders. He's a soldier. He's a bully. You don't win wars with niceness, doctor. You win wars with guts. Grenade! Get away! Get back!
Is this a test? He's still skinny. Do you model yourself on that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, uh, you know, I'd like to think I'd be brave enough to jump on a grenade, but um, I don't know. I'd probably um, kick it away. I don't know. <laughs> but I'd like to think I would. Oh, well, that's, that's a really nice message to end on, in a way. I just, did, did you want to talk about the state yard? Yeah, well, I mean, state yard, you know, I, I get kind of bored of talking about Oasis CEO because I do it so much, but, you know, I think that that's been the defining factor in my life really for the last sort of two and a half years has been this Oasis podcast and it didn't it wasn't supposed to be such a big thing in my life it was going to be just me and you know the various kind of friends that I've talked about and alluded to over the last few years have a bit of a chat about Oasis you know if you go back to the first episode um, that's what it's kind of supposed to be just you know have a bit of a chat about Oasis and see where it goes and it's only really that I kind of sent out requests for inter to interview people and the people accepted and you're like oh Okay, well, this could be something then. Um, and it's ended up becoming a much, much bigger part of my life and taking up a lot more time and effort and stuff. But it's worth it, you know. I think that, as we said, it's that sense of community has been so incredible that, yeah, I will keep going with it and we'll keep going as long as people are listening and, and as long as there's still interesting stuff to say. Where do you see it coming? Or do you not want to think about that? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, like, people will say to me quite a bit, like, oh, what's your plan what's your out you know what's your end game going back to the, <laughs> that film but what's your end game I said well I haven't got one like I'm happy to do it I mean the, the, the rod from my back I suppose is the fact that we're doing these um, song A to Z's and so we're only up to C <laughs> so, you know and we've been doing I've done like 92 episodes I'm up to C so you know I need to get cracking on those because if I'm going to actually get get that done then but you know that's the thing because it's not just about the nostalgia of oasis but it is about the ongoing stuff that's been happening with the brothers so as long as they're still releasing music i'll still be interested to talk about that um i thought that when they went on a break i would then probably step away for a little bit maybe and just make it like once a month or something rather than you know once one you know one to uh, one every week or two weeks but it was just still so busy you know there's still so much to do and so many people to talk to it's n i'm never trying to find guests i've always got like four or five people that i've been meaning to book in and it's just a case of getting them booked in and obviously with the live shows as well so with these live shows as long as they're sort of doing well and, and still people still come into them you know then i'll still keep doing the podcast to help keep those going so yeah i don't know we'll, we'll just keep on We'll soldier on to use an Oasis Soldier on. Brilliant. Quite an adventure. Is there anything else you wanted to add? No, no, that's it. I think thank you very much for taking the time to speak to me for this is my choices and stuff. I do appreciate it. And I hope people enjoy this. It gives them a, a, a bit of an insight, probably a little bit more than I can do over in the Oasis world because it's not really, you know, I've talked about my life a little bit, but I kind of stay away from that really just because it's like, well, if I was listening to the Oasis podcast, I wouldn't really want to hear someone bang on about why they love Billy Bragg for 20 minutes. <laughs> I think get your own, get your, do a Billy Bragg podcast, you idiot. So, you know, it's been really nice to sort of demonstrate, you know, a, bit, sort of a couple of different things. Now, I really hope you can enjoy it. Thank yeah. you. No, you're welcome. Thank you as well for doing it. It's it's been really enjoyable, and also I think it's connected to what we were saying a little bit earlier, like with the Simon Mason thing. It's kind of zooming in on you, like you've got this uh, overview of the Oasis podcast, but then if you zoom in a bit, it's like you have your story too. So, so mm. that it's really nice to kind of hear the wider, yeah, the wider context of your life and like how mm. this all happened and. 
where your passions <laughs> came from and yeah, what led to this and yeah, no, it's good. It's really good. I, I think, you know, my idea, you know, the overall message of this is, you know, make what you love. You know, if you want to go out and do it, if you've got something you should say, literally pick up the phone and do it. You know, just talk. Everyone's got in their hand better equipment than they had to put man on the moon, right? You pick up your phone, you press record, talk into it, plug it into a laptop, download Audacity. It's a free bit of software. You can do it. You can even download it. You can do Anchor and things like that. You can do it all on your phone now. It's so easy. So, you know, and, and this space, you know, there's another Oasis podcast literally popped up called um, Oasis Podcast, some might say. But, you know, there's plenty of space. Maybe not Oasis, maybe, you know, someone else, Blur or Pulp or Cortinas or whoever, go and do someone else because I'll listen to it. Yeah, no, all good. Cool, good, cool, thank you. I'll, I'll let you go because I realise you must be desperate to leave. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you so much, Um yeah, no, absolutely fine. All good, all good. Cool. Brilliant. Cheers, Katie. Bye. Bye.